The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. Good to go. All right, Coleman, welcome. Nice to meet you. Great to be here, man. What is, what is X Factor? Is that your podcast? No, I wish. X Factor, this is a Lauren Hill shirt. Oh, I've seen you wear that on more than one occasion. You know, I just love this shirt. Oh, okay. It's comfortable. I look good in it. I feel you do good look in, good it. in it. Thank you. You do look good in it. Um, I'm glad you agree with Jamie that golf is a problem. What kind of problem? This motherfucker. It's a good problem to have. All, all he cares about is golf these days. There's a lot going on in the golf world. <laughs> you know, I'll say, I just around. I resent golf because my dad is good, and I think he really wanted me to be good. At oh. least I sense that, and I never was. It's such an awkward swing. It's a very weird movement. I was watching Tiger Woods swing on uh, YouTube yesterday mm-hmm. for whatever strange reason because they were talking about how. <laughs> Look at man, I'm scared. I told you, I'm fucking scared of golf. I can't. Right. I can't do it. I don't have that kind well, of time. I feel like with every other sport, if you're a pretty athletic person, you cannot embarrass yourself in a short amount of time. Right. With golf, it seems like there's very little correlation between general athleticism and whether you can do this swing. So here's a slow-mo of Tiger Woods. And, you know, what it is is, like, I was looking at the way his body moves, and then I, I remember hearing about all the different surgeries he's had on his back. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, it kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. If you look at the amount of torque. Yeah, let, right here is where the torque starts. Let it drive through. Like, this amount of fucking power. It's such a, it is such a weird movement of the body. And you have to be – you have to, like – be loose and strong at the same time, right? Yeah, you gotta keep your arms like stiff, but your wrists loose and your yeah. hips loose, but your legs stiff. Everything's counterintuitive. Yeah. A baseball swing is so much more intuitive to me. Maybe that's because I played more baseball growing up, but I think it is more naturally with the grain of how the body would just like if, if a caveman just picked something up yeah. like a club he would swing it more like a baseball bat than like a golf club certainly it makes sense because the golf thing is down low yeah right and so it has you have to stand sideways and it has to go past your legs and yeah up. i'm trying to find this this guy he's a long drive hitter i've seen, he's pretty new to <laughs> jack he's huge he's a baseball <laughs> player but he's got this very unique swing he calls it the Nowak swing he does a giant baseball step happy but he, fucking, swing. he blasts the ball too oh my god Oh, Jesus Christ. (laughs) But I've tried doing it. It really fucks up your entire swing for everything else you're doing. It's it's only made for hitting the ball as far as possible, which is... Yeah, you can't putt like that. But can you make it accurate and do that? You you can, because the long drive thing, you have to hit it within the fairway. You can't just smash it as far as possible and count as far as it went. It has to be within, like, the lines kind of thing. I can't imagine that there isn't some, like, giant linebacker-type dude that if you could talk teach him correctly, they would have immense power. Like, can you imagine if you could teach Francis and Gano how to drive correctly? That ball might never land. <laughs> well, there's a picture of uh, Tyson Fury swinging, which I think he's pretty new to it, and he's a giant person. He's enormous. The it's amount the same of, kind of thing. The amount of torque. Like, yeah, he's. it doesn't look as impressive. You also don't have to, the other part, which is I've been figuring out as I've learned, Swinging as hard as you can doesn't make the ball go as far as it will as if you swing nice and soft and hit it in the right spot on the club. That's the same is, thing with pool. Right. Like with a break shot in pool, you don't want to hit it as hard as you can. You want to kind of hit it smooth. It's it's strange, but that doesn't get out your frustration of hitting a bad shot, which feels good too. I kind of think breaking a club over your leg when you had a bad, bad shot might be very helpful, but it's not. 
etiquette has been terrible. Why would it be today. helpful to break a club over? It your feel leg? good to get out that like because some people want to throw the club or throw a ball when you when you do bad. Yeah, because you you're frustrated with yourself. It's all about yourself. You can't get, yell at yourself. There's players that have gotten in trouble for that because they catch it on mic. We've like you've yeah, they, right, you've right, right. Yeah. So like, how do you deal with that mind game? If you could just break something over your leg, I got a theory about why people like Tyson Fury. It's not just because he's awesome, but also because he has back fat. That, I have no idea who Tyson Fury is. You don't know who Tyson Fury is? No. Really? He's the heavyweight champion of the world. I don't follow it. You don't know who Tyson Fury is? No. He's one of the most extraordinary heavyweight boxers ever. He's six okay. foot nine. He's a gypsy. And he's a fucking character. They call him the Gypsy King. Wow. He was very fat at one point in time, and then he got pretty thin. But he's still, in between fights in particular, he carries a lot of back fat. He like does that. not look quick or particularly strong. Dude, he's amazing. It's interesting. It's, it's all deceptive. First of all, he's yeah. huge. He's so tall. I mean, he's six foot nine. And he just has an immense reach. Immense reach, and he's very talented. Like, it's not just a physical advantage. You know, those gypsies, like, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, any of those um, documentaries on bare-knuckle boxers. Mm-mm. Bare-knuckle boxers in the UK, it's like the, these gypsies from, like, Brad Pitt and Snatch. Did you ever see that movie? Mm-mm. You didn't? No. Are you just reading books all the time, <laughs> just being an intellectual? Like, what are you doing with your time? Yeah, I read books, I read articles, <laughs> I record podcasts, I make songs. I watch documentaries. I watch I watch Netflix shows. Well, they've done documentaries on these people. Okay. There's a, a whole culture of bare knuckle boxers mm. that live in caravans. They live in like these trailers and they they travel around and challenge each other. And because of YouTube, these guys have videos. So they have videos where they're challenging each other, like, Bobby O'Donovan, you're a fucking bag of shite. I'm gonna fucking take you out. And they have these like ridiculous YouTube challenge videos. Where so they how, how do you think they compare other. to professional boxers, like if you put them in a ring? It's a different thing when you're doing bare knuckle because you could break your hand so easily. So mm-hmm. you have to be a little bit more cautious. There's a thought, like have you ever seen like pictures of old timey boxers? They stand like this. Put there's them up, a, yeah. There's a thought that they were <laughs> punching like that because they wanted to hit only with these oh, two knuckles sense. in the front. Right. Because it's m- less likely to break your hands. Right. And you know, there's also it's probably they just didn't know any better. Like they didn't you know, no one had come along that could punch like Mike Tyson. Mm-hmm. It had like perfect technique, and mm-hmm. so they thought that this is probably the way to do it to like hit each other. But have you seen this documentary, One Punch? No. One Punch is a collection of stories of people who have killed someone accidentally with one punch. Oh wow! Bar fight, single punch. They fall down, hit their head on mm-hmm. a curb, the side of a table, and they die. And it goes through their legal stories, how they got in the fight. And it's just this fascinating recalibration of uh, what you think is possible with a small amount of violence. It's like you never think if you're going to punch someone once that they're going to die. I think that. Maybe you do. Because I try you're, to tell people well, that you're, all the time. You're very close to violence. But um, I think people who aren't close to it don't realize how quickly things can spin out of control. The thing is the hitting the head. And this is uh, apparently this was in Bob Saget's uh, autopsy. They believe that he blacked out and fell back and hit his head. Mm. And that is uh, what caused massive skull fractures in his head. And, you know, some people think like, oh, my God, maybe foul play was involved. But apparently there's no way. Apparently the um, door, you know, he had a key card to get into the door of the hotel. No one had been in it since he had been in there. 
no one had left. So he opened the door, he went inside, and you know was, he had just done a show, mm. and apparently he just fainted and banged the back of his head. And then there's a video, I don't know if you ever see the Heather, yeah, yeah. Heather McDonald video. Uh, the, the writer, Heather McDonald? No, the comedian, Heather oh, McDonald. Okay. Have you seen the video of her? No, no. See if you can find that. You, you, well, you definitely can find it, it's everywhere. She's on stage, and it's kind of it's the craziest video because mm. people think it's joke. Mm -hmm. She's talking about how many vaccines she's had. She's like, "I'm double vax. I'm boosted. I got the shingles vaccine." You know, and like, <laughs> and and she, right after saying that, blacks out, on stage, falls back mm. completely, bangs her head off the ground, and which is how people die. So, give me some volume on this from the beginning. Did shows, meet and greets. No, no, go from the beginning. Go from the beginning. Never got here. COVID clear. No, go from the beginning so I could hear her talking about the vaccines. Here it goes. Oh, sorry. Trigger warning. Yeah. I don't mean to brag. I don't care. But I want you to know, double vaxxed, booster, flu shot, and I'm going to be honest, I have the shingle shot too. And I still get my period. What? Yes. Traveled, went to Mexico twice, did shows, meet and greets, never got COVID. Clearly, Jesus loves me the most. Seriously. <laughs> so nice. So nice. Oh, Boom. Somebody wants. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. So she fractured her skull doing that. Yeah. Poor woman. I mean, but that's just a coincidence. She was talking about the vaccine while that happened. Yeah, they call it instant pharma, which is <laughs> horrible. But that's the phrase that I keep hearing online. There was a woman uh, on German television that the same thing happened to her recently. She was talking about vaccine mandates mm -hmm. and talking about how important it is to mandate the vaccines. And she blacked mm -hmm. out on television while talking about it. Just Strange. coincidence in the timing of like right. when the sentence was said and when she blacked out. Yeah. Yeah, but the point is falling back like that is fucking super dangerous. Mm -hmm. And a friend of mine, uh, Kevin James, in fact, Kevin James from the King of Queens, yeah. he used to work as a uh, bouncer in a club, in a nightclub, and one of the guys he worked with got into a bar fight. They were, um, you know, telling some drunk that he had to leave, whatever, and a fight broke out. He punches this guy. The guy falls back, bangs his head off the ground, and dead. And the guy wound up doing time. Like, the bouncer wound up doing time for that. Yeah, the, the philosophers call this moral luck, right? Mm. It's like, um, we both commit the same action. I punch someone, you punch someone. One of these person has a prior medical condition, or just by pure dumb luck, ends up tripping, hitting their head. So we both did the same exact action, one of us committed homicide, one of us got into a bar fight. Yeah. That doesn't actually speak to which one of us is a more moral human being. That's pure dumb luck. But the law can treat it as if you're a murderer and you're not, right? That's moral luck. I think it's a very interesting concept. Texting while driving is another example. I've done it. I don't do it, you know, as a, as a, as a rule, but like I've done it in the past. Almost everyone has, you know. There, there's someone in the world where the first time they texted and drove, they ran over like a five-year-old. Yeah. Law of averages says that must have happened. Yeah. And um, on the one hand, we want to punish those things. On the other hand, 
you can't really call that person a moral monster when they're doing something a lot of people are doing and just being getting much luckier with. Right? Yeah, there's an interesting distinction between someone choosing to do something evil versus an evil result. Mm-hmm. Like if your son dies because someone was texting and driving, it's the most horrible feeling. You'd probably be so furious and you'd want revenge. You'd want to punish that person. But it's not that they did it on purpose. The difference between someone killing your son on purpose, mm-hmm. that's that's an evil act. This is just thoughtless and shit luck and also not anticipating consequences. Mm-hmm. And that's why the law recognizes intention as a factor that distinguishes, say, one murder from a worse murder, right? Yeah. And um, I think the reason we recognize intention in the law is because clearly all human beings, we have this intuition that there's a it's a different type of person who does a thing on purpose than does it by accident. Uh, One kind of person wishes you harm and probably will keep wishing you harm. The other, the other kind of person, at worst, was negligent. And I think there is, um, I think that's a very important observation to hold steady throughout our uh, legal and non-legal judgments of people just in the culture, right? Like people want to eliminate the distinction between, uh, you know, saying, uh, for instance, a racial slur, directing it at someone and saying the word in quotation marks, right? Yeah. And I, I know that you're familiar with the fact that people erase the distinction between those two things. Oh, I'm very familiar. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not that clueless that I haven't been paying attention to what's, what's going on. Yeah. But the point is the same principle by which we all understand the difference between manslaughter and homicide and so forth should govern the way that we judge people for, you know, words and everything else, right? But certain people want to say intentions don't matter. Uh, that that just that can't make sense. You know, you'd have to throw out our whole legal system if that were true, uh, or at least overhaul it. And I think that's an important principle to recognize. I think the the conversations haven't been had enough. Whether it is with uh, someone doing something accidentally and having a horrible result, versus doing it intentionally, or someone using words, versus someone that is actually trying to be racist Mm -hmm. and there's there's definitely a difference in those things and i think we as a society we have rules that we have decided upon and then when someone violates those rules that person is a violator Mm -hmm. and that person needs to be judged and dealt with Mm -hmm. because of that i think we have this sort of moral righteousness when it comes to uttering certain words or doing certain things and the the good thing about the the judgment that comes out of that and the inner is is conversations is like people start having conversations like wh- what is the difference why is it different mm-hmm. like what are you allowed to say what are you not allowed to say and mm-hmm. why you know it's interesting with with the n word controversy that that happened here right when that was happening I was watching for the first time ever I'm ashamed to admit the five-part OJ documentary from ESPN from <laughs> from a while back it's like it's been on my list to watch for a long time I finally watched it and you'll remember there's this moment in the trial where 
you know, it, it's now known that there's probably a, a Mark Furman N-word tape, you know, like this, this right. cop that uh, collected the glove at the scene has a history of using the N-word as a racial slur, directing it at, at, at people and so forth. And Chris Darden for the po- prosecution, with the jury out of the room, he looks at the judge, he says, we cannot allow the jury to hear this tape, and here's why. Black people cannot hear the N-word and remain objective. And the jurors, they have to remain objective. So we can't we can't allow them to hear. We can't admit this as evidence. That's fascinating that he's the prosecuting attorney. Prosecuting attorney made that argument. And then the defense, Johnny Cochran came back on the defense, and he said, what the hell are you talking about? The idea that a black person can't hear the N-word in any context and remain rational, remain objective, um, understand the context of it, it's patronizing, it's condescending, it's racist. I'm ashamed that you made this argument, right? And, you know, regardless of the merits of it, his, Johnny Cochran's view was seen to have sort of won the day among, among people. And they did admit um, much of, uh, or at least parts of the tape, and the jury heard the word. And basically the argument was, among progressive people at that time in the 90s, was it's condescending and patronizing to say that every ex- like any example of that word being spoken just like scrambles black people's minds or something. And I think there's been a huge sea change in what the pro- progressive argument now is. The progressive argument now is much closer to Chris Darden's point of view that any example of this word being used, whether it's in quotation marks, um, whether you're talking about the word itself, or whether it's being hurled as an insult, it's all the same. It's all so deeply, uh, you know, shattering of the the inner psyche of a black person. Um, so I just I think we at at minimum we should mark how much has changed there and who was making these arguments back then and who's making them now. Um, and I worry that people are basically circling the wagon on an idea that they haven't really thought through, if that makes any sense. The Darden thing, I I get it from a prosecutor's perspective because Mm -hmm. he doesn't want them to dismiss this, this character in his case, which is Mark Furman, who... On top of that, also has been accused of planning evidence. Mm-hmm. So there's like a two thing going on with Mark Furman. You're dismissing his validity, first of all, because he's doing something illegal. Mm-hmm. He's planting evidence. Mm-hmm. And, then, and he might have planted blood too, right? Wasn't that, wasn't, didn't they it think? Was, it was alleged, or it, yeah, people were wondering. And then on top of that, he might have he might have racist perspectives. Mm-hmm. And so like you've got two things going on simultaneously. And then also it's like everybody had seen the Rodney King video. Yes. This was a big part of the OJ case that a lot of Huge people maybe part. have um, forgotten. Mm-hmm. But when people saw that Rodney King video, which is really one of the first viral videos, mm-hmm. and you see Rodney King on the ground and these multiple white cops beating him with sticks, and the fact that those cops no got off. No possible reason. It's well. What was the what was the story that he was running from them and he was on PCP or something like that? Like what was Who the knows? story? Like why? Uh, you know, I, I don't remember the details, but the you know the as it dragged on and they they keep beating him more and more senseless. Yeah. It just becomes more and more obvious that there's there's no reason that they had to beat him that, that much, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. And and they got off. And they got off. And so when OJ got off, everybody was like, "Well, we got that one." Yeah. It was it was a thing where they felt it was a revenge mindset. Yes. I think that that's very unhealthy. I have to say, I don't think. I mean, listen, it's a cliche that two wrongs don't make a right, but it's a very it's a very deep cliche. It's a cliche for a reason. And um, like the like the notion that because the cops did something completely unforgivable, horrible to Rodney King and got off for it. And and, you know, that did prove all of the wider in, in you know, the wider points about the systemic practices of of the LAPD. That's all valid. The fact that people couldn't separate those true and important points from this other trial about this, you know, this wealthy former football player that quite clearly killed his wife. Um, you know, I think that we have to insist that people be able to think two things at once. I mean, that's just one example of it. But, you know, it, it's it's possible to acknowledge everything true and valid about the Rodney King case and still say, I'm sorry, OJ's guilty. And there weren't that many people, um, certain that certainly weren't that many black people at the time, it seems, that were really emphasizing that bright line that we can think two things at once here, folks. Yeah. And it doesn't make us look good to conflate the two. It's actually not just. Well, there was a, a real underlying thought that the, the Los Angeles Police Department was corrupt. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just that. It was also the Rampart um, division. And there was allegations that cops that were involved in that were also involved in the killing of Biggie. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was there was a lot of shit going on with L.A. cops where mm-hmm. there was no Internet back then. So we have to remember back in the day, like these discussions were had with people just talking about it at a bar or over the dinner table and no one had like real data to pull from and there was no like real investigative journalism that was being done where you could show it. I remember the Rolling Stone article on um, Biggie's murder. It implicated uh, Rampart. I think it was, I think they were saying it was Rampart cops. They, I think they even narrowed it down to the specific cops they think had something to do with the murder where there was a bunch of ro- and they know this was a fact there was a bunch of rogue cops that were doing murders for hire they were they were basically organized criminals wow. that were operating under the gang of the Los Angeles the police department remember like colors remember the movie colors Mm-mm. Sean Penn Mm-mm. Ice Cube or Ice T rather had that song hit song colors it was a, a song with a, it was a movie about with Robert Duvall and Sean Penn about corrupt LA cops and so we kind of got it through pop culture. We got it through conversations. But when we, when people saw the Rodney King beating and then they saw that those guys got off, that was one of the very first sort of like public acknowledgments. Like there's a real fucking problem with this. Imagine how many Rodney Kings there were that just didn't get filmed. Yeah. And this is, I mean, we now live in an age just in the past 10 years really where everyone in America virtually has a fairly high definition camera in their pockets at all times and some police departments have moved to universal body cams and and so forth and that's been uh, I think that's changed incentives you know almost more than any law that we pass could right the the understanding every cop has 
that when he or she is policing the public, the public can simply whip out their phones at, at any time has, I mean, that has to seep into the consciousness of, of police officers knowing that they're being watched. And, you know, that's a double-edged sword, though, because on the one hand, um, it's way harder for a cop to abuse someone uh, now now that everyone can, can film. Um, on the other hand, because everyone has a phone in their pocket, the availability of bad things happening has just skyrocketed, mm. right? Yeah. And in a country with over 300 million people, it gives us the impression that horrible things that are actually extremely rare are in fact happening all the time. Just by numbers. Just by numbers. And yeah. I mean, the way I think about this is, for instance, if we talk about uh, unarmed civilians getting killed by the cops, um, unarmed citizens, if America were exactly the same, but the size of Canada, like, you know, one ninth the population, it would mean that we would have roughly one ninth the, you know, interactions between cops and, 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 and citizens and one ninth of the opportunities for, for things to go left and uh, one ninth of the videos um, of, of cops killing people unarmed. And it would seem like it were happening a lot less, but in fact, the state of the country would be the same, right? So like just the fact that we have such a large population makes it feel like lightning strike rarity events are happening all the time. Yeah. And the media obviously thrives on that. Well, those are the ones that are very popular and those are the ones that um, people want to share. But there's a lot of those, there's a lot of ones with cops getting attacked too and people mm -hmm. don't seem to care about those. There's a, a website that I follow, a Twitter, uh, Instagram page rather, called Police Posts. Mm. Go to... Uh, police post there's one that they put up today about this guy um responding to a call and uh this uh man is at the door and the cop is walking towards the door and the guy's saying hurry up she's choking on her own blood something to that extent here yeah play <clears throat> this no. so do it from the beginning so you can see no do, do it I, from I, the beginning I, I, because otherwise oh, it's gonna fuck God. it all up okay here give me some volume all right here we go so the suspect oh, saying, come on, come on. She's choking on her blood. Oh. Come on. So the Who's guy's the walking house? towards the door. Uh, who's all in the house? It's me. Who's you? So, so as the guy's walking towards the house. As the guy's walking towards the house, the guy's standing in the, you can play it again. The guy's standing in the middle of the door and he's got no shirt on and he's saying, come on, you know, she's choking on her own blood. And as he comes close, the guy just pulls out a gun and just opens fire at point blank range and lights this cop up. This is a thing that, you know, when we, you see horrible interactions between cops and civilians, you don't see too many of those mm -hmm. there's, but there's a ton of those and, and if the, you the follow cop, copsy though certainly well they're terrified cops yeah. have, do you know how many cops have ptsd they mm -hmm. they every day see people get shot every day see people get run over by cars mm -hmm. like the amount of shock mm -hmm. that's in their system and then every time they pull a car over and they have tinted windows they don't know they yeah. don't know what's going on inside that car they don't so, know who the this the is the point is. i tried to make during the 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 year of the george floyd protests and riots People would often say, well, look at Western Europe, look at Canada, 
look at all of these places uh, where they have cops, and in certain of these places, the cops don't have guns. And some sometimes they do. How come you're not seeing video? How come it's only in America that we're seeing videos of cops killing unarmed people? Right? Yeah. And uh, I mean, I think there there's a serious conversation to have to be had about the culture of the American police being being seriously flawed. Uh, at the same time, the fact that this happens in America means that policing in America is not the same as as policing in 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 the UK and other countries, right? America is a country with more guns than people, and uh, that fact alone means that when a cop pulls over a suspect in America, as opposed to in almost any other nation, or, or any of other our, our peer nations, they have a little thought in the back of their mind that is reasonable, which says, the thing he's reaching into his pocket for could be a gun. Could be a wallet, but it could be a gun. In other countries, cops don't really have to have that thought, because it's always a wallet. And and that's a that's a systematic difference between policing in America and policing in, in other nations that makes it harder and makes it um, makes it a facile comparison to simply say why isn't this stuff happening in Western Europe? There's that, but then there's also the history of police violence and abusive police officers mm-hmm. in America that's different than the history of cops in any other place, and I think that. That has to be taken into account too. That there's an enemy uh, perspective that a lot of people have when they look at the cops. They think of the cops as the enemy. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily know what it's like in Europe, but I've got to think that the polarization between cops and citizens, and a lot of it is, uh, you know, broadcast via these cell phone videos, like the George Floyd incident. It was a girl, a 17-year-old girl filmed it on her cell phone, mm-hmm. changed the whole world mm-hmm. because of that video. Literally right. changed the the landscape of of the the way people think about racial interactions in mm-hmm. America mm-hmm. because of one video. Right. There's so many people that think of cops as the enemy because of these videos. And there's so many of these videos. If you look at the perspective that people had, you know, um my parents were hippies in the 60s. And, you know, they grew up during the civil rights movement and they were around during, you know, marches and protests. And when Muhammad Ali refused to go to fight in Vietnam, they stripped him of his title. And there was there was this understanding of the difference between the way cops treated black people versus cops treated white people. But it wasn't on YouTube. It wasn't mm-hmm. available in your face. So that this data that you're talking about this, that's disproportionate because there's so many bad ones. Even if there's millions and millions of interactions, it only takes one that becomes viral that will change people's opinions. Mm-hmm. One Eric Gardner, right. you know, one George Floyd, one video that changes people's perspective on how what what goes down between cops and citizens and what is wrong with the cops. This this didn't exist before. And so when you see videos like this where this guy who's a cop gets shot at and you see, you know, these other interactions, like we're, we're not getting like necessarily a balanced perspective. There's clearly a problem in the way cops deal with all citizens. There's clearly uh, there's a there's clearly a culture of ab- abusive police officers in some precincts, in some place. hundred percent. hundred percent. 
I, I, I remember, it's fresh in my mind because I saw the, the OJ documentary, but there was, um, there was some tape that was released of cops like privately talking about black people, and they had some horrible name. I, I can't remember what it was, but that they thought was hilarious, right? And it just, it was this, this moment where it was, just, it was perfectly clear that they saw themselves as one kind of people, and they saw the cells that they were, the, the people they were policing as a totally different set of people, unlike them. Um, and that was almost, you know, psychologically akin to the relationship of, of colonialism in, in some way. Um, but, but I do want to, I mean, the, the way the media has portrayed this issue in, in recent years uh, has been to skew the discussion of shootings so as to only show the black victims of these kinds of uh, of these kinds of killings, right? I, I wrote a long essay uh, in 2020, and one of the points I was trying to make in that essay was, uh, you know, unarmed white people get killed by the cops every year in circumstances identical to the ones that we see uh, unarmed black people getting killed. That doesn't mean racism doesn't exist. I think the the, the majority of racism almost certainly occurs in the kind of non-deadly interactions and harassments and racial profiling of people. But if we're talking narrowly about killing unarmed civilians, you know, I took as an, just as, a, as an experiment to show how often this happens, I took a single year, I, I closed my eyes and picked it at random, and I picked 2015 and just listed 10 different unarmed white people that got shot by the cops uh, and killed that year. Most of the cops got off. One of them is a six-year-old kid and, um, you know, these are, you know, like nobody knows these names because it only gets pumped into the national media when it's a black person, which gives the false impression that it only happens to black people, right? Like everyone knows the, the name George Floyd as they should, uh, but uh, very few people know the name Tony Timpa, I found, which is this guy from Dallas in 2017 that was killed on camera with a knee on the top of his neck for 13 minutes and the cops joking the whole time. It was the closest example to a George Floyd that, um, that, that I'm aware of in, in recent American history. This is on video? Yeah, it's on YouTube. Really? Th 13 minutes, these cops have their back. On, it, it wasn't the neck. It was the very upper back, but, you know, strangling in, in the exact same way. And this poor guy, he's calling out for his mother. He's clearly, he's clearly struggling and, and in pain. And the cops are joking. They're making jokes. They're like, Wake up for school, Tony. Wake up for school. Uh, blah blah blah. As he's passing out, they're making jokes about how he's, and and he died. And that was 2017, and he was a white guy. And um, you know, nobody, very few people are aware that this even happened, because of the color of his skin, right? He wasn't. He didn't fit the narrative that this only ever happens to black people. And I think that that narrative has a cost, which is that. Uh, we misperceive the problem with these shootings as being only about racist cops. I have no doubt some of these uh, examples, uh, it's like the cop wouldn't have shot if it was a white guy. You know, a, a white guy reaching, reaching into his pants um, for, for what looked like a gun, just it wouldn't have scared the cop so much if he was white. I have no doubt that that has happened. But in this day and age, I think pretty much no cop wants to be the, the next Derek Chauvin, right? They, they, when it comes to shootings, at least, um, you know, they have to be exercising a, a, a pretty 
unique amount of restraint, at least in the past few years. And I think it's, you know, we, we have minimized unfairly the role of bad training, the role of bad incentives, how cops almost never get punished for these kinds of things. Um, that That's starting to change. I mean, just today, Kim Potter got sentenced to, uh, to I think, a, about a year in prison for... Uh, uh, for shooting the the I forget the the guy's name, but what is know, this case? Uh, Kim Potter. She she was a, a female cop. Is that the woman who walked in the wrong apartment? Um, she she's the one that, uh, if I recall the details, she thought she was using her taser. Oh right. She says right. she thought she was using her taser, which is I don't know the details of it to to judge the plausibility of that excuse, but it uh, at the very minimum it seems like horrible training. It seems like horrible training. But I can attest to the fact that people under pressure completely fall apart. Mm -hmm. And some people under pressure fall apart way worse than others. Mm -hmm. There's something about adrenaline and fear and physical violence that narrows people's windows of perception and their ability to make rational decisions. They don't know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. They can't. I remember I was watching a fight. Not a... a, a, a professional fight. I was watching a street fight at the comedy store. I was um, at the, um, um, we were like in the front bar area and across the street on the other side, it was the House of Blues. And there was these guys that were arguing and they started fighting. And one guy literally was, his face was like this and he had instigated this and he didn't know how to de-escalate and he was arguing with this guy and like fuck you and fuck you and then all of a sudden he's in a physical confrontation with this guy and you see him literally like in full-blown panic fear and he's doing this mm -hmm. flailing with his hands like he's, he has no idea how to hit someone mm -hmm. he probably can't believe it's happening and I could just see the constriction of his thinking the full panic in his movement full-on just locked in doesn't know what's happening and a car like a bus pulls in front where uh, I see these guys swinging mm -hmm. and a, a car pulls in front and as the car passes I see the guy laid out just completely flatlined and the other guy runs off so wow. he got knocked unconscious and it, he had no business fighting but he mm -hmm. was in this oh, oh you could see him in just full panic and me as a person who's been around people fighting their whole I see that I recognize it and I'm mm -hmm. like this is someone who's probably never done this before. And I think a lot of cops panic. Oh, fuck yeah, they panic, know? man. This has happened before. There was a, uh, a person uh, in Oakland, I believe, who did the same exact thing. Went to reach for their taser, pulled out a gun, and shot a guy. And it's on video. And this mm. was at a... At a, um, at a uh, it's not a subway. What do they call that? The BART, BART system in San Francisco? Mm -hmm. And this person, same thing, just thought they had the taser and pulled out a gun. So it's not unprecedented. No, yeah. It's people fucking lock up under mm -hmm. panic, man. I had this guy, uh, Anthony Barksdale, on my podcast. Anthony Barksdale was the deputy commissioner of the Baltimore Police Department for years and, like, I don't know, something like starting in 2007 or something like that. And... Uh, he was, fun fact is that he was the namesake of the character Avon Barksdale on the show The Wire. Um, wh whoever the, the, the writers were studying the B BPD at that time or studying Baltimore, they took his name oh. and made it into one of the main characters. It's a great show. 
Anyway, Anthony Barksdale is this guy he's from Baltimore. He grew up in a time of, in an area of great violence. He, he told a story about uh, being a kid on a sports team and a shooting broke out and his, the coach would hide them in a dumpster to, to, to hide them from the bullets. Whoa. So he, he grows up, you know, he grew up, he's from the city and he grows up determined to make a change by becoming a cop. And he eventually rises through, through the ranks, becomes, um, you know, uh, the, the commissioner, deputy commissioner. And um, he just, you know, told all these stories about these tense situations he had got into with subjects that were violent, subjects that were mentally ill. And, um, you know, one of the biggest assets that he had was that he was very comfortable in physical altercations. He's a black belt in jujitsu. And he was able to de-escalate so many situations without going for his gun because he had a kind of confidence and mm. knowledge that he could use his body to subdue and arrest a sus suspect without hurting them, without hurting himself. And he tried to train. Um, I mean, he, he, he couldn't formally through the, th through the department require BJJ training but he would take his people and do and incentivize them um, to train in BJJ outside of the, the official training. The thing about jiu-jitsu that's different than other martial arts is that you do it full blast. Mm -hmm. Like uh, a lot of martial arts, like sparring is uh, very, uh, very muted. Like you're kind of like, you're not really supposed to spar full blast in like right. a karate class. Right. You're supposed to control your strikes. And because of that, you don't get to experience the chaos of a real human being trying to take you out. Mm -hmm. And in jiu-jitsu, because of the fact that it's grappling, it's unique in that you can go full blast and instead of getting hurt when you get caught in something, you could just tap out and keep going. Right. So if someone catches you in an arm bar, you just tap, you keep going, and then you get accustomed to a human being resisting with all of their, their might. Mm -hmm. So like if you're in a situation with a person and all of a sudden it escalates into a street fight You're so comfortable with this kind of confrontation You're so comfortable with the kind of physical chaos that's involved in a human being resisting Also, there's like a language of the way a body moves that you become very fluid with you understand weight and balance You understand like how to control a person People who don't have any experience in martial arts and they wind up being police officers are fucking dangerous mm -hmm. because they're they're relegated to weapons. They're all, all they have is fear. They can scare you or they can shoot you. Mm -hmm. They can tase you or they can beat you with a club. There's they don't have the ability to control you. Like if I'm around a person who is my size and they have no martial arts training and all of a sudden this person starts getting threatening with me and they you know they start like saying they're going to kick my ass or something like that my thought is okay what am i going to do to you am i going to hit you or am i going to strangle you that's mm -hmm. what my thought is mm -hmm. if i know this person doesn't really know how to fight and they're they're saying crazy or they don't have like real experience mm -hmm. and they're saying crazy things my thought is not, oh my God, I'm in trouble. Yeah, you're calm. My thought is- Which allows you to be rational. Exactly. And that is very difficult to acquire. Mm -hmm. That requires 
decades of training. Yeah. And for a person to achieve a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, like, it's very rare that someone, I mean, BJ Penn's the quickest I've ever heard of. He got it in three years. Mm -hmm. That's crazy, though. I mean, he was training every day, hours and hours a day, fully obsessed. For most people, it's like 10 years plus. Right. So that that is, it's like most things. You acquire a level of ability over thousands of hours. And the level of understanding of what you can and can't do, what the way things work, if you don't have that and you're a police officer, it's like, it's like being a writer and you don't understand language. Mm-hmm. It's, it, you know, it really is. It's, yeah. You don't have the tools for that job. And, you know, Andrew Yang said it best. He said every police officer should be at least a purple belt in jiu-jitsu. Mm. I think he's dead right. Mm-hmm. I think it's a great suggestion. How long would it take to become a purple belt usually? It depends on the amount of time that you put into it and how much drilling you do and also your physical attributes. You know, some people, maybe they, uh, they started off as like a break dancer or a gymnast and they have mm-hmm. a huge advantage. Right. Huge advantage because you have... Uh, a real understanding of how your body moves. You have like a, you you have a, you you have a comfort level with physical movement, and you have this just innate understanding of how to balance yourself and and the strength that's involved in that. If you come from a background of gymnastics, or you come from a background of dance or acrobatics or anything like that, you have a giant advantage. Mm. Giant advantage in jujitsu. So I would argue if we lived in a rational and wise society one of the things that would have come out of the racial reckoning in 2020 was some billionaire or groups of very wealthy people creating some kind of fully funded jujitsu training for police officers yeah no why isn't that You'd have to require it you'd have to require it there's Carlson Gracie uh, what is what is he doing with who is that Oh, this is this is Barksdale. Yeah, this is Anthony Barksdale on the right there. Um, Really, really, uh, just brilliant guy. He's now a commentator. I don't know if he still is, but uh, when I had him on, he was a commentator on CNN now, and he's he's a retired. So now he feels he can really speak freely about Mm. uh, issues in a way in way that people who are who are still police often feel they can't. Carlson Gracie was the f- one of the first guys I'd ever trained. The first guy I ever trained with, uh, I, w- I trained with Luis Herrera as a, at um, Hicks and Gracie's place. But Carlson Gracie was the second place I ever trained at. That was mm-hmm. in Hollywood in, in the late 90s. And uh, he was, you know, Carlson Gracie was a, a legend. Mm. I mean, he's a guy that was um, in the early days of no rules fights. Mm. He was the cleanup guy. Like when Elio Gracie lost to certain people, they would send in, I think Valdemar Santana was the guy, and they send in Carlson Gracie to clean up because he was the badass of the family. Mm. They'd come in and fuck people up that mm. like Elio couldn't. Me and my girlfriend, a couple weeks ago, we watched the uh, Rickson Gracie documentary on YouTube. Hickson. Hickson, yeah. yeah, that's right. That's right. R Portuguese, yeah. Right, right. Choke. Yeah. Choke, yep. It's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's one of the greatest documentaries is... of all time. Yeah. He was so good and still is very unique, very unique. Uh, it's an honor to know him. And but um, Hickson was very unique because he had all the things he had. First of all, his father was Elio Gracie, who was the 
one of the most important figures in the history of martial arts. Mm -hmm. He was the guy who was a small man. He only weighed like 147 pounds. And he was out there having these no rules fights with these big giant guys. And he mm -hmm. relied completely on technique and leverage and developed this system of technique and leverage is applied to the ground game with uh, Carlos Gracie and with uh, a bunch of the other people like Carlson and a few of these other like early jujitsu practitioners. So he gave birth or, you know, he fathered rather Hickson and Hickson was unique in that he grew up with it and also that he was very physically powerful. Mm -hmm. He was unusual in that he got really obsessed with yoga. Yeah. So he had incredible flexibility. He was obsessed with breathing. So he had this incredible control of his breath and control of his mind because of that. And he would do like cold water immersion where he would get into like that's that scene in the in the film where he gets into this freezing mm -hmm. glacial river in Japan and, you know, up to his neck and he's breathing this water. And he was a completely different type of person that changed yeah. jujitsu. Yeah. The breathing thing is is interesting. I mean, I remember, you know, my mom was super into Iyengar yoga. She would take me to yoga when I was like three, and I would play with my little action figures while they were doing her thing or whatever. And I I would I watch videos of Iyengar. What is Iyengar yoga? What's the difference? It's uh, you know, there's just like different strands of yoga, yoga from different. I don't know what you'd call them, like grandmasters, whatever's Iyengar and like vinyasa. I'm probably sounding very ignorant to someone who knows about it, but Iyengar yoga was, was the one that, that my mom did, and it's it's from this guy, Iyengar, and there's a video of him on YouTube um, just like reciting this little poem about the breath, and then he does a demonstration, and he exhales for about 60 seconds. Wow. Just like... How long can you exhale for? It just, I mean, obviously, if you're letting that much air through, you can do it for a while, but there's no pace slow enough that I could exhale consistently for a full minute. It doesn't even seem real. And I, you know, I've, there's a little part of me that still somehow thinks it's doctored or. No, it's you like, can do it. But like, he just does it. And it's incredible. We, that level of training. I showed you the sensory deprivation tank earlier yeah, yeah. today that we have here. Um, one of the exercises I do is 30 seconds in, 30 seconds out. That means I take a breath for 30 seconds, a slow breath for 30 seconds. It's very hard to do. And I count to 30 as I'm breathing in, and then I count to 30 as I'm breathing out. So wait, but I just don't understand how, like, what's getting trained? Is it your lung capacity is getting trained or your, your lung diaphragm? Your lung capacity, but also your willingness to tolerate discomfort. Ah, So okay. it's not just like, like here. If I'm gonna breathe, right? So like ready, ready, set, I'll take a deep breath.
Holy shit. So I'll do that. <laughs> and I do that over and over again. And so there's oh a moment God. afterwards we you want to go, <gasps> right. but you have to resist that. So you have to resist that moment, and then again. Mm-hmm. And you just do it over and over and over again. And it's and do you notice the time you can do it increasing? I, pro- I mean, I probably could go longer if I had to go more than 30 seconds. But it's fucking hard. It's hard to do 30 seconds in, 30 seconds out, and keep going. Right, but do, do, you, do, you, just like, do you notice once. progress over time since when you started doing this? You you notice what your ability is. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes there's a thing where your your, your body says, just quit, quit now, mm-hmm. quit now. Mm-hmm. You know, and you have to get over that hump. That's mm-hmm. the cold water thing too. Mm-hmm. That's the thing like a cold water immersion. Mm-hmm. There's a moment where you get in, your body's like, let's get the fuck out of here. Mm-hmm. And you have to get past that. Yeah. You have to just accept it. And right. the way you accept it is to concentrate on your breathing. Like I did a video where I got into a 33-degree um, ice bath for 20 minutes. And I said, well, let's see how long I could do it. I'll just do it on Instagram. Mm-hmm. So I made a video. So I posted this video. I just sat this camera up, and I p- got into the thing. And Every minute, I'm like, one more minute. Let's do one more minute. And I just kept going, one more minute, one more minute. And the whole thing I'm doing, I'm just doing this breathing exercise where I'm just. Mm-hmm. So by, by breathing hard like that, one of the things you're doing too is you're tightening up your core. So you're kind of heating yourself up a little bit. Mm-hmm. You're heating up your muscles by straining and resisting. And you're resisting the cold plunge. Yeah, this is the video I was talking about. Give me some volume on this. But he says a really cool thing in the in the beginning, actually. <laughs> At the beginning, he goes, "The mind is the king I'll of the breath." Let me hear that. It's actually a really nice little parable. Is the king of the senses, and the breath is the king of the mind. Yeah, <laughs> that should be a, that should be my ringtone when people call me up. The mind is the king of the senses. There's nothing cooler than like an Indian guru. Mm-hmm. You know, a yogi. Yeah, that's why Osho is able to uh, yeah. get away with exactly. all that shit. Exactly. Because people yeah. fall for that shit so easily. Osho's that one thing where, uh, you ever seen the video where he talks about people being retarded? No. But the people are ret- You ever <laughs> heard that? I'll, oh, I'll yeah, send. I have seen that one. I'll, I'll send it to- You gotta to, remind me that. <laughs> I'll send it to Jamie. Because it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's so not what you would think of <laughs> when you think of like a guru, you know, like I know I have it in here somewhere, Jamie, but I might have a hard time finding the it. Here, here it is. The government. By the people. <laughs> of the people. For the people. <laughs> but the people are retarded. <laughs> So let us say, government by the retarded, 
He's not laughing. Farther retarded. <laughs> of the retarded. <laughs> but the people are retarded. Whoo! Yeah. That's uh, it's easy to feel that way sometimes. It is, but it's easy to be cynical. You know, I think, I think the thing about human beings is that you can always find evidence of both. Mm -hmm. You can find evidence of very interesting, cool, compassionate people that are, you know, very charitable, wonderful to be around, giving, love everybody, and then you can find evidence of cunts. Mm -hmm. There's people that are just assholes mm -hmm. you know they don't give a fuck about anybody else but themselves yeah they want everybody else to suffer they want themselves to uh, exceed and to excel you could find those things and i think there's more evidence of both of those things now than we've ever had to face before and it really begs the question like what do you do with your time do you immerse your your yourself in positive people that are thinking about all aspects of humanity and trying to advance the way they view the world and advance their own perspectives and and enhance their education and and fill their mind up with new ideas or do you just complain mm. do you just bitch about things mm -hmm. do you just i mean we're in we were talking before about the uh brazilian version of me today mm -hmm. uh, before the show where glenn greenwald had uh set me hip to this guy i don't know his name um, but he is a Brazilian podcaster who is very popular. And uh, he likes to do his shows intoxicated, like I do. And uh, apparently, Glenn said that what he said was he doesn't believe anybody should be deplatformed. And he said, uh, and someone said, like, including Nazis. And he said, yeah, I don't think you should deplatform Nazis, which, as we were saying before, was like the original position of the ACLU. Mm -hmm. The ACLU, which a lot of are like Jewish attorneys, where they were saying, no, we shouldn't deplatform Nazis. And this is like 30 years after the Holocaust, mm -hmm. right? Fresh in our mind. So for us today, I mean, you're, this is like 1990. Imagine if the Holocaust was in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And then today in 2022, we're saying, no, you shouldn't deplatform Nazis. And so this guy was saying, I don't think you should deplatform Nazis, and you know I don't think you should deplatform anybody. And so a bunch of people started saying he's a Nazi, and he was saying that's not what I'm saying. And they kicked him off of his platform. YouTube apparently won't let him. He still has a YouTube account, but YouTube won't let him start a new account. And uh, people want him deplatformed off of everything and whatever platform he was on, where he was getting paid for his podcast, he got fired from. Yeah. I mean, here's what is this guy's name? Uh, Bruno. Bruno. There you are. I are you? I don't know how to say that. Yeah. Okay. It says it right here. Three years ago, video game streamer Bruno Ayub decided to start a new podcast, Flow, modeled on the Joe Rogan experience. Okay. He said, uh, "Man, it'd be really cool if I did that in Brazil, since nobody else has." Told the New York Times, he interviews comedians, academics, government officials, ufologists. Drinking alcohol and smoking weed. It's the exact same show. It's motherfucker. You stole my show. <laughs> anyway, his New York rises due in no small part to model developed by his hero as he learned last week. Aping Rogan comes with a risk. February 7th conversation, the two members of the Brazilian Congress, Ayub, I hope I'm not saying his name wrong, 
argued that Brazil should embrace free speech absolutism, including legalizing the currently illegal Nazi party. He said, in my opinion, the radical left has much more space than the radical right. He told his approximately 3.6 million YouTube subscribers, both should be given space. I am crazier than all of you. I think that a Nazi should have a Nazi party recognized by law. He added, if someone wants to be anti-Jewish, I think he has the right to be. Ayub woke up Tuesday to thousands of people calling him a Nazi on social media. Sponsors pulled funding and government, the government opened an investigation into the alleged offense of Nazi apologism. Uh, and his podcast production company announced they will be severing ties with a 31-year-old provocateur. So there you go. I mean, censorship just almost never works, right? Like every one of the major ideas that rule our world right now, right? Let's say the right loves Christianity. The left is, you know, largely secular. Both of those ideas have at different points in history been highly censored. Yeah. Right. Like Christianity was highly censored at one point. Later, it became the law of, of the Roman Empire. Um, atheism, through, I mean, has been heavily censored on pain of death for hundreds and hundreds of years. And now it's rather mainstream. I mean, those are big examples of censorship not working in the in the grand arc of history. But we also have just very recent examples, you know, lab leak. You know, regardless of what you think about it, and I, I think it's probably true, but regardless of what you think about it, what's clear is that the attempts to brand it as misinformation did not work in terms of getting people not to believe it. It this, worked for a small amount of time for, to exactly. get people off social for, media. For how long? About a, yeah. what, a year? Yeah. It was enough, though. It was enough <laughs> that in many people's eyes that became a taboo subject that was very, mm -hmm. very difficult to breach. You couldn't <clears throat> discuss it. Until Trump was out of office, and, but in the in the long run, yeah, history shows it just it never works. Yeah, and that's even truer nowadays because way back in the day, the Catholic Church didn't like something; they had a decent chance at being able to burn every copy of that book. They did that sometimes. They were like, okay, we burned the very last copy. Maybe someone can reproduce it from memory. Maybe it's going to bubble up somewhere else. But we really burned the last copy of that book. In those cases, you can sometimes argue censorship kind of works, but even then, nowadays, the internet, you can't burn copies of every book. And there's this attempt now from the right to get books banned from public school libraries. You know, certain books like, you know, uh, Ibram Kendi, sort of woke racist books, like anti-racist baby and like all these ridiculous books that I think are crazy too, but... I would never say ban them from the public school libraries if that's going to do anything. All it does is it hands that author a PR victory where they get to say, look, they're trying to censor me. Yeah. I must be right about something, right? And in the age of the internet, your kids are going to be exposed to all kinds of ideas, no matter what. I think as a culture that we need to have this conversation when it comes to ideas, I think it's a very, very important stand to take that we have to engage with almost all ideas. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think there's a, a fucking, there's an argument for eating babies, right? There's not, if someone makes a I baby mean, cookbook well, and you start <laughs> saying there's too to many people, the, the, the roads are crowded, we gotta eat babies. Like There, there is a famous uh, philosophy paper asking why isn't it 
why is it wrong to eat babies? And philosophy students in Ivy League schools will study this paper as a thought experiment. Like, yeah. hold on, why is it wrong to eat babies? And you go through all the reasons it might be wrong. And the, the point of the thought experiment is not to justify eating babies. Right. It's to get to what your basic principles are. Like, why are things wrong? And then from there, you build up a worldview. Okay, well, if that's the reason why something is wrong, if it's that suffering, the human suffering is inherently wrong, now let's apply that principle now that we've worked backwards, build up uh, an idea of what other things are wrong and why, rather than simply taking for granted uh, that certain things are wrong. I think right? there's also a thing that's going on in this culture today where people want things now. And when you have a complex idea that has to be debated, like here's one, why do we still have deeply impoverished neighborhoods that have been in the same state of crime and of gang violence and have been going on. Was that a photograph? What was that? I did not know I had mute on. Sorry. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you took a screenshot? The, what, I mean, why have these civiliz- why, why, why have these communities stayed in the same state without any government intervention? Like, what mm-hmm. is, what, why is that? Mm-hmm. Like, wh- the, 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 this is a complex issue that if you wanted to discuss it and you wanted to develop solutions and you wanted to like work work out, it's gonna take a long time mm-hmm. and a lot of people are gonna have to contribute and it's going to have to be, and, and because of that, it's too complicated. People just leave it alone. They like, Baltimore is Baltimore, mm-hmm. leave it alone. Southside Chicago is fucked up, leave it alone. Mm-hmm. And it never gets the kind of attention that other simple things to solve get attention. Like, mm-hmm. like this guy, this is a simple thing to solve in, in a, the, the eyes of a person who's a censor or the eyes of a person who is, uh, who's all for deplatforming people, fuck him, get him off the air, solved it. We got a real quick solution. It's not a real solution, but it's a quick way to solve something. Mm-hmm. And I think something like a thought experiment of why you shouldn't eat babies. And if human suffering is the problem, now let's expand what other forms of human suffering can we find solutions to that we've ignored? Right. And why are we accepting certain forms of human suffering? Like, Why are we accepting the death penalty when we know that X amount of people who are in jail are unjustly, uh, unjustly I heard punished. your podcast with Josh Dubin. Uh, yeah. Josh, that's his name, yes. right? Yeah, that, that was the Innocence Project. That was really... Really amazing. We've done a series of them, and through those podcasts, multiple people have been released. Yeah. You know, the, the last one we did, not the, the current last one, but the one before that, because of that podcast, two people were released. Yeah, it's amazing. He's amazing. He's done incredible things, and but that's a perfect example. It's not fucking easy what mm-hmm. he does. Yep. It, I mean, it requires deep thought. He has to have a, a massive amount of research that he does on each subject. He has to educate people on junk science when it comes to physical evidence. Like, uh, there's people that have his hair samples at scenes that clearly show the hair has been pulled from someone's head. Mm. There, there is not a hair that has been left behind. So this, this hair could have been pulled from a cadaver. It could have been pulled from uh, a person that's in jail and that these things sometimes are planted. Bite mark evidence. He has a whole podcast on mm. the junk science that's mm-hmm. involved in prosecuting people and p- how many people are wrongly convicted. Yeah. It's fucking complicated. Like there's so many things. Like those, whenever we do one of those podcasts, we generally spend 
time talking about general general issues with wrongful convictions and then we'll find like one or two cases and go over those one or two cases and you realize like just this cursory examination of one of the, one or two cases takes so much time and so much heartache is involved in these people's lives and a lot of them like they're poor or, or some of them don't speak English well and they become patsies and mm -hmm. they use them you know because a prosecuting attorney needs to have someone you know a DA needs to have someone that they pin the crime on and once they decide okay let's go with Jorge over here and then boom they just throw everything they can to try to win the case mm -hmm. everything that, and this is it's a giant problem with our legal system and it's a complex problem. It's not a problem that's easily solved. If you have thousands and thousands of people that are wrongly convicted, which we probably do, mm. there's probably thousands and thousands of people right now that are in penitentiaries and they're in there for th something they did not do. Mm -hmm. That's a big fucking problem. I mean, yeah. that's a giant problem, and it's not an easy one. It's not like kick this guy off of Twitter. He said that Nazis should be able to talk. Fuck mm -hmm. him. Mm -hmm. You know, get rid of his sponsors. We're done. So that kind of censorship, that kind of short-term solution to a much larger problem is foolhardy, but I think it's an artifact of the kind of culture that we live in where people want quick, easy solutions to things, yeah. and they want to make a thing into a much bigger problem than it really is. What he's saying is not, he's not saying it the best way, but he's probably a little drunk. And he's probably, I'm speaking from my own personal experience, like how I do a podcast, you get lit and you just start mm -hmm. talking. But his idea is sound. His idea is you shouldn't deplatform people. We were talking about Daryl Davis mm -hmm. before this podcast as well. And Daryl Davis, who is a guy who is a blues musician, who has personally but through his own conversations with people, he's gotten more than 200 KKK people and neo-Nazis to turn over a completely new life and to give him their outfits, give him their wizard costume or whatever the fuck it is and their Nazi outfit. And this one man, just through having conversations with people and just being this undeniable, amazing human, has changed the way people think about these racist ideas that they have mm -hmm. just by being himself just by not not by censoring yeah, people I think that happens a lot that happens more than i mean like daryl davis is, is amazing and exceptional in many ways but i think that those kinds of changes of heart are actually far more common than you might suppose just kind of observing the tenor of the media in our times like i was just talking to my my friend noam dorman who owns owns a comedy cellar and he's Jewish, and he has. He, he said over the years he's had a lot of Arab people working for him, coming from Arab countries where they've never met a Jew and have crazy ideas about Jews, like insane. And you know, he was like, I would never use that as a reason not to hire somebody, of course. And he, he's like a very pro-Israel guy too. He's very very proud of being Jewish, but he they become friends and. Their ideas about Jews change over time as a result of interactions. Yeah. It's it's not uh, like again as exceptional as Daryl Davis is. It's not you know that is that kind of thing is happening by the millions in people's lives in ways that will never make it into the media um, all the time. And that's another reason why people underestimate uh, others' ability to to change their ideas. I mean, there's yeah. this. I've heard people argue that you know persuasion is actually not a good strategy. Persuasion just doesn't work, and um, you know I think that's that's just not true. You know what is true is that 
people very rarely change their opinions in real time on camera on the shows that you're watching because right. people, um, myself included, have a vested interest in showing that we know what the fuck we're talking about. And, you know, you're, you're actually very unique in this way of, you know, if a guest shows you something and it's a fact you haven't seen and it contradicts your belief, you will often change your belief in real time, right? Like that, no one does that. So people watching the media get this perception that, well, no one's ever changing their mind. Everyone's just set in their ways. But I think the truth is people are changing their minds all the time in private by listening to podcasts by themselves, by watching stuff by themselves, where they don't pay a reputational price for changing their mind. So just because we rarely see evidence of people changing their minds through persuasion doesn't mean it's not happening all the time. It happens all the time. Um, it, it happens through experience, and hopefully it happens because the person is capable of recognizing their flaws. The real problem comes when someone has a belief that's it's not accurate and you stick to it anyway mm. because you don't want to lose. Mm. And that's a giant problem. And yeah. in my mind, that's a tremendous weakness. Mm -hmm. And I don't like finding weakness in me. Mm -hmm. When I find a weakness in me, I eradicate it. Yeah. I find it, I go, okay, that's a flaw. Mm -hmm. That's why I change my opinion in real time. Mm -hmm. Because I refuse to support an opinion or uh, an, a, a false idea that I have espoused. And I, I've refused to connect my mind with ideas. My mind is not, I, whatever idea, whatever fact that I, is, I think is true, if that fact turns out to be incorrect, I will abandon it immediately if I can, mm -hmm. it, as, long as, I, as long as I'm sure. Mm -hmm. I think you have to. I don't think you're, you are your ideas. I think you are this thinking entity that is trying to solve as many problems as you can that are around you and that are involved in your life. And as soon as you are willing to commit to an idea that you know is incorrect, you've done yourself a massive disservice in service of your ego, which is the worst fucking thing that you could ever fuel. Like you should never fuel your ego. It mm -hmm. exists whether you like it or not. You should try to control it and humble it and to try to keep it to be, keep it, have it the least intrusive factor in your thought process. So the moment the ego gets challenged, you have to be able to accurately assess whether or not the information that you've clung to is valid. Mm -hmm. And if it is not valid, you have to discard it. Mm -hmm. It's very important. Yes. I, I totally agree. And I was reading the coverage of your cancellation like a week ago in the New York Times. And... There's one article where they had a little box graphic in between the text, sort of providing one of these short summary explainers of the whole situation. And they said, Joe Rogan's brash personality has been part of his appeal as a podcaster. And I, mean, I, I haven't seen or heard the word brash in long enough that I looked it up. And it, it was... Uh, self-assertive in a rude or overbearing way. Hmm. And I thought to myself, is Joe Rogan brash? It's like, 
you just gave a spiel about how important it is to say when you're wrong, to admit you have an ego. Have you ever heard a brash or over overbearing person? I mean, like the definition of overbearing is the guy that never fucking admits he's wrong. It right? doesn't listen and blah, blah, blah. It's like the notion that, that you could be described as brash. To me, it betrayed, I was like, they're, they're not even trying to hide the fact that they just fucking hate you. Well, I think <laughs> they're like hardcore lefties, right? And hardcore lefties don't know what the fuck to do with me. Because I look like a Trump supporter. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> the fact that you're a bald white guy yeah. that's muscly and yeah. tattooed. And does, I do cage do no fighting commentary. Right. I like guns. I hunt. Right. I bow right. hunt. Right. Yeah. I, there's a lot of things that don't line up with the fact that I support universal basic income. I, mm -hmm. I support universal health care. Well, I was, my family was poor when I was young. We were on welfare. I'll mm -hmm. never forget that. Mm -hmm. I'll never forget being on food stamps as mm -hmm. a kid. I'll never forget wondering if we were going to have enough food to eat. Right. And that, in my mind, the system worked with my family and they provided us with assistance. And then my parents started making money and we got off of welfare and they started doing really well. And then by the time I was in high school, they were doing great and they had a thriving business. So I, I, I got to experience how social systems, so social support systems and social safety nets can really be beneficial to families. Mm. And I think they're huge. I think yeah. they're very, very important. And I fully, fully support that. And I am way more left-wing than I, it, it, the only things that I think of that I, I think people could point to that are right-wing with me are gun control. Like I believe in the second amendment because I, I, I believe there's times where you're going to have to if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, if the wrong thing happens, the wrong person invades your property, tries to harm your family, you want to be able to defend yourself. We don't live in a world where there's no guns. We don't mm -hmm. live in a world where it's even and equal and people are un unanimously generous and kind and no one's violent. That's not the reality of the world we live in. And so because the Second Amendment does exist and because we do have gun rights, I don't I don't agree with stripping those rights from people. I don't agree with this uh, idea that the problem is guns. I think the problem is human beings. Mm. I think the problem is human beings and human behavior, and I think it's exacerbated by social issues. And I think that really one of the better ways to stop violence in this country is to alleviate it at the bottom floor, which is poverty. <clears throat> Poverty and crime ridden communities and mm. I think it's only one of the most frustrating things to me when I look at our Our culture is like what we were talking about earlier that there's there are these communities that have yeah. been largely ignored yep. by charitable ventures mm -hmm. like they just don't put enough time or effort into it The government will spend trillions of dollars in <laughs> Iraq They'll give no bid contracts to Halliburton to rebuild shit. We blew up, but they don't do anything with yeah. these impoverished communities So I'm well, super left-wing in mm. most ways Yeah, I think so when it comes to the, these places that have just had intergenerational poverty, intergenerational vi violence, intergenerational single-parent homes. Redlining laws. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the equilibrium we're at, at the country, in the country right now, seems really dysfunctional to me because basically what you have is... Um, 
you know, you have a right wing media that will they they will talk about things like, uh, you know, the constant drive by shootings and kids getting caught, uh, you know, usually black kids getting caught in the crossfire. And they, they'll talk about the insane homicide rate for, for young black men, which is the number one cause of death for, for black men in their 20s. But they'll do it in a way where you know it's about political point scoring, right? It's like when Tucker Carlson talks about, you know, black on black crime and the problem of homicide, you don't get the sense that he's deeply motivated to actually focus on this and, and rebuild these communities. Um, and, you know, maybe I'm slandering his motives, but uh, I think, you know, one doesn't get it. One gets a sense that the first purpose of raising those points is to point the finger at, at Democrats, Democrat controlled cities and, uh, you know, just partisan point scoring. Right. And so that's what you have on the right, basically. And what we have on the left is anyone who mentions these problems. Right. You mention the fact that homicide is the number one cause of death for for black men in their 20s and for no other race of men. And you try to tug at people's heartstrings for these stories of, you know, little girls dressed up in bumblebee costumes for, for Halloween getting caught in the crossfire. And the wider consequences of growing up in such environments, how it dooms kids um, to to failure and 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 so forth. Um, you know, it, it's it's made difficult to acknowledge the reality of the issues and to talk about it in a common sense way, without being accused of being a racist. Right. right? It's like, you, oh, you're just talking about black on black crime. Um, if you're white, you're a racist. If you're black, you're an Uncle Tom. And basically, we don't want to talk about it unless the cops did it. Right. If the cops, if the cops kill a kill a black person we will shut down everything. It's right? a good example is that guy who drove over that crowd of people at the Christmas parade in Wisconsin, mm. and they were saying the accident caused by an SUV. They kept saying that because the perpetrator was a black guy, and mm-hmm. the black guy who had just gotten out of jail, who had just gotten out of jail for trying to kill his, uh, his I think his kid's mom, his, his girlfriend, trying to kill her with a car. Mm-hmm. So he gets arrested, goes to jail, gets out on very low bail. I think it was like, I don't remember how much it was, but thousands of dollars, not much. And then plows over a whole group of people. And the coverage was bizarre because they, they were bending over backwards. They're doing mental gymnastics to try to not say this black man black. drove over all these people, these, uh-huh. this random crowd of people. Because they didn't want to be accused of being racist or and they were woke or they were, you know, whatever, for whatever, whatever their reason was, mm-hmm. for whatever their ideology was for portraying the story in the way they did that's how they w- decided to portray it to me the most ex- egregious example of this and it was a total indictment of the state of our nation on, on the topic of race um, and how much race thinking just warps people's morality it was the the jasmine barnes case from maybe three or four years ago she was a, a little girl in in houston uh, that was killed she was shot while in, in, in her mother's car, tragically. And at first they saw a guy in a, in a pickup truck seeming to flee the scene, and it looked like a white guy. So basically this became 
it was right around New Year's, maybe 2019, I think, and it became a national manhunt. You had, you know, Sean King raised $100,000 to for any tips on, on who this guy was. They had a police sketch of a guy that kind of looked like you. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and you had politicians all across the nation talking about this case, New York Times covering it every day. Um, and then it turned out about a week later, they got a tip, they found the guy and it was two black guys and it was a turf war and she got caught in the crossfire. The kind of thing that happens all the time in this country. Right. So was the guy in the pickup truck just fleeing the scene or was, uh, it turned out he, he had a, some kind of weird story of his own, but he was just a bystander. He was a bystander, innocent bystander. Um, and and so they got they got the two guys that that did it, and um, there was this, you know, moment of embarrassment I think among people because what had happened is everyone thought a white guy who looked you know like who looked the part killed this black girl, and they the reason it got any attention was because people thought it was a racist killing. That's what every all the politicians were saying. This is white supremacy. He was a neo-Nazi. It's the narrative spun out of control, and then at the end of it, there was this embarrassing moment of of acknowledging that actually, in this particular case, the human beings that killed this girl happened to be black, and the case would have gotten zero national attention had people known that from the start. Did the national attention continue after they found out that it wasn't a black guy that killed him, or did it fizzle out? Fizzled out, and. And so, you know, like if if a if a Martian came to our society and was studying it and saw this episode, the conclusion that Martian would come to is, okay, interesting, the American Homo sapiens, they seem to care a lot when one of the lighter skinned ones kills one of the darker skinned ones. But when one of the darker skinned ones kills one of the darker skinned ones, it seems they don't care as much. That's interesting. And they would like report it back to their Martian whatever overlords. Yeah. And, you know, viewed from the outside, that's a crazy ethics to have. Like, no no philosopher would argue for that as, I mean, well, some have historically, but, like, no, no person would argue for that as an orientation towards the importance of skin color. And yet, that is the status quo on, on that subject. And the equilibrium we're at is that people on the left don't want to talk about this and therefore can't really solve it. And people on the right seem to only want to talk about it when it's a, a point to score against the left in, in yeah. a philosophy that is otherwise usually opposed to any kind of uh, you know social safety net increases and, and, and so forth. So it's a very dysfunctional state we're in as a country, which is one of the reasons it's so hard for us to solve this problem. The, the problem of having two very distinct ideologies is a huge issue too, because most people, they're kind of in the center Mm -hmm. of a lot of ideas right like most people like they'll say well you have to be disciplined and you know that's part of the problem with a lot of people in this life is that a lot of people are lazy mm -hmm. and a lot of people fall victim to a lot of you know psychological traps and they you know they don't follow through on their life they don't they don't develop discipline they don't they don't do what they need to do in their life and this fucks them up but also what was their childhood like 
Like how, what, what kind of modeling did they have when they were young? What kind of abuse did they experience when they were young? Like how much psychological damage did they have from their, like no one's starting off at the same like starting block. Mm-hmm. Like we're, we're starting off at wildly different places in life and the right never, never wants to acknowledge that mm. for whatever reason. They're, they're this, the ideology that comes with that if it's, if it's rigid, if you're just following the doctrine, it's like pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Like the fuck are you talking about, man? You live in the south side of Chicago, you think you could just pull yourself up by your bootstraps? Mm-hmm. You're crazy. Like, if there was a Wild West-type neighborhood for white people, mm-hmm. where white people are shooting people the same way people are getting shot in the south side of Chicago, they would be freaking the fuck out. <laughs> Can you imagine if there was a place like that? Like, if Tucson, Arizona was just, like, shootouts in the street. And like, what, on a, a, a weekend of gang violence in Chicago is, is occasionally <laughs> stunning. Yeah. Stunning numbers. Yeah, there can be like 50 people shot in a weekend uh, at its worst. Imagine you know? if that same scenario was playing out in right-wing neighborhoods, in right-wing, mm-hmm. all-white neighborhoods, if they were basically like fucking Jesse James in it mm-hmm. and just out there shooting each other. It'd be yeah, a very, what, what, very different discussion. What would happen, though? Would it be more sympathy for them or would it be more law enforcement because there's le- you know, less guilt involved? It would, be, it would be something different, that's for sure. Especially if they grew up in good neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Imagine. Imagine if they're like people from good neighborhoods with good education, like middle class, yeah. like no excuses. Well, and th- then there's always been this like insane galling asymmetry of like you're caught with a dime bag in the hood. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. how many fucking Harvard kids are smoking weed in their dorm rooms? Oh, but even better yet. <laughs> you know? How about the crack laws? You know, yeah. Uh, Dr. Carl Hart is uh, outlined this so, so perfectly because that's the guy that does heroin, right? Yeah. Yeah, he's amazing. He's a fascinating person. But one of the things that he has said, Dr. Hart said, like, it's the same physiological effect as cocaine. But if you get arrested, mm-hmm. completely different sentencing structure. Yeah. If you get arrested with crack, there's minimum sentences that they have to put you away for. If you get arrested for coke, it's fucking nothing. Yeah, that's probably the the most galling example I know of, of a of an allegedly colorblind law that ends up having a massive disparate impact massive. on people of color. Massive. Um, I'm sure white people do crack too. I know white people have done crack. Yeah. But the difference is <clears throat> that has infested and destroyed black communities, and mm-hmm. they know that. Mm-hmm. And so to handle the overwhelming amount of crime, instead of addressing it at a root level, they just decide to just put everybody in a cage. Right. Which is crazy. So one difficulty with addressing it is, uh, you know, in a, in a way, you, you made this analogy before of we spend all this money overseas trying to reshape and rebuild other countries, but we don't spend it at home. I think that analogy, it works in more ways than one. The other way it's useful is that often when we try to spend monies and reshape these countries, you know, in the Middle East, for instance, no matter how much money we spend, it doesn't seem to make a lasting impact. Like we can't just rebuild the country, the, the rebuild the culture of the country by throwing money at it because it's not that simple. Um, I think that same lesson is is another one of the difficulties with uh, creating healthy, vibrant communities out of communities that are intergenerational poverty, intergenerational violence, which is that okay, we can get a bunch of government bureaucrats and um, people outside the community that want to do good and 
throw a bunch of money at community programs and so forth. <clears throat> but if it doesn't feel like it's coming cre from credible people in the community, it may have very little impact. Mm. Um, you know, role models in general are very important, but they usually have to come from the place you're from in order to matter to you. Right. Right. Like me as a black guy who grew up privileged in the suburbs in, in New Jersey, how's an inner, you know, the average inner city kid looking for a role model to have a better life is not really going to be able to look to me just because we're the same skin color and say, well, if he, he could do it, I could do it. Right. It's not going to work because I'm not from where he's from. In order to feel like you can actually do something, most people need a person that is from where they're from, uh, has a similar background to them, and nevertheless went on to go to college, went on yeah. to, you know, make six figures or something. It's like when 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 you see that, then it actually can change you for the most part. And and um, you know, I, I know this guy Bob Woodson who who runs the Woodson Center, and the kind of outreach work that he does. It really acknowledges that principle, which is he will find people in the community, you know, former gang members, uh, pastors at churches, and sort of work with them in a way that, you know, they know the community. They feel, it, it, you know, th their work feels credible. It actually has a much bigger chance of, of making a difference. And this is one challenge with uh, getting, you know, government to sort of throw money at the problem is... If they don't understand that principle, I'm often skeptical that interventions are, are going to work as well as they could. I think that's very <laughs> accurate. And I think there's an expression from gambling, um, particularly from uh, playing pool. Like guys would try to bet double or nothing. Like they would lose a bunch of games in a row and they'd maybe be down 200 bucks. And mm -hmm. I'll, bet you, I'll bet you all of it on one game, double or nothing. And the expression is you got to get better the same way you got sick. Like, I'm not going to let you win all your money back that quick. Why would I do that? Because all I can do is if I lose, then I don't have anything. Now mm. I'm back to zero. But right. if I keep making you bet the same way, it's going to take you hours to win your money back. Mm -hmm. Like, if I've been beating you for five hours and we're playing, you know, a hundred bucks a set and I've got you down six, seven, eight, nine sets and you say, All right, nine hundred bucks? How about nine hundred bucks on this game right now? Like why would I do that? It's gonna I would mm -hmm. rather it's gonna take a long time. Right. I think that sort of thought process kind of applies to fixing these communities. I don't think you're gonna take a place that's been fucked since nineteen ten and make it better in five years. Mm -hmm. I think it's gonna take generations. Sure. But I think it's a valuable thing to invest in. Mm -hmm. And I think it should be a thing that should be thought of as, the, I always say it this way, so I'll say it again. The, if you want to make America great, you should have less losers. Mm -hmm. How do you have less losers? By giving people a better <laughs> path, by making it so that they don't feel like from the beginning they're saddled down with uh, massive amounts of problems massive amounts of unsurmountable issues in their community, in their life, in their personal life, and in the, the people that they surround themselves with, their friends. You've, you've got to invest a lot of time and a lot of money and do it with the goal of transforming these places eventually. Mm -hmm. How much time is it going to take? We don't fucking know because we've never done it before. We've never done it before. The only <laughs> thing we've ever done to a neighborhood is wreck it. 
You know, if you look at the the worst neighborhoods, I mean, they've gentrified some places and made them, but all they've really done is like they've taken rich neighborhoods and expanded them. They didn't take a poor neighborhood and elevate it. It's mm. a different thing. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a way to do it. And I think there's a way to do it, but it has to be done in a way like it has to be addressed nationally. It has to be something that's sold to the American people. Like, like there's the, a lot of the problems that we have with crime and violence and, and despair and poverty. They don't have to exist. These things can be where, and they can also be a viable, <coughs> profitable business for whatever company can come in and fix these things. Mm. Because if we have government funded operations overseas to fix Iraq, why can't we have government-funded operations to fix Detroit? Like, why can't we do that? I think we can. One challenge to both of them is that politicians are always thinking on their election time frame. Yeah. So they've only got two, four years uh, for sure to do something. And the next guy breathing down their neck is going to run on everything they're doing is wrong. Right. And, and then say, I'm going to reverse Obamacare as soon as I get in office. Right. Right. And what happens is, in the best of cases, you get people that start good programs. Let's say you, you get past every hurdle of government incompetence and bad luck and lack of funding, and you actually manage to establish a really good program in an inner city neighborhood for poor kids, an after-school program that's like tutoring them and they're having fun and it's like pro-social and it's using key leaders in the community and blah, blah, blah. Well, then the guy who started that gets like, you know, gets beat at some point the, or, or the, the, the thing just disappears, the program disappears, and you've made promises to these people that the program will be around. And now it's just ripped. They got used to it, and now you've ripped it out from under them. And um, it's uh, it's 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 very difficult. That that's another one of the challenges that that makes it tough to actually make these things work. The solution to that is perhaps even grosser. The solution to that is long terms as president, long oh, terms as mayor, long terms as governor. Yeah, I mean, it's not a good solution because there's a mm. reason why we only allow them to have four-year terms yeah. and you have to get reelected. But look what, look what they're doing in China. Look what they're doing in Russia. I mean, Putin's been running Russia for a long fucking time. Yep. The CCP's been running China for a long fucking time. And it's not good, but through that— They can commit to projects yes. like, like uh, concentration yeah. camps for Uyghurs and so that, forth. That's on the dark side of it. And they also can commit to business projects, yeah. right? They can, they're, they're so interconnected with corporations that the corporations can't do anything unless it has the best interests of the, the Chinese people or mm -hmm. the Chinese government, the, China, the CCP as a whole. Like they, they work hand in glove. And mm -hmm. this is something we don't have in America. If we had, and this is not good, I'm not saying you should have, but if you had like a 20-year presidential term or a 10-year presidential term where someone had a long time to get good at the job like it's the weirdest job ever because it's the most important job in the world and we have new people do it all the time mm -hmm. it's like it's you don't know what the fuck you're doing yeah. if, especially a guy like trump like with no political experience whatsoever all of a sudden he's at the helm of He's the commander-in-chief of the greatest army the world's ever known because he won a popularity contest and he gets to do this job for four years. Like, that's nuts. Mm -hmm. It's a stupid way to, to handle it, but it might be the best way. <laughs> well, like, yeah, well, 
What's the better way? I know that's the problem. There isn't a better way. Like, I mean, you don't want a dictator. Mm -hmm. But like any other person, like if you had a person who is a CEO of a corporation, you would want that person to know the ins and the outs of that business. You would want them to be. If you got like, let's just say uh, Tim Cook at Apple. Tim Cook has been at Apple for a long time. He is a man who's like deeply embedded in the business of Apple. He understands it from his head to his toes. He he's he's aware of all the aspects of, you know, chip development. Like, but I guess the counter argument would be like. Biden has been in politics his whole life. Like he understands how the Senate works and so forth. So th does that not count as experience? It kind of does. It kind of does, but not as being. Well, he actually was vice president for eight years, right? Yeah. But he's just he's not a good example because he's basically a shell. Yeah. You know, cognitively, he's like, yes. I I just in the fact that that took a long time for people to admit that was one of the things that people were saying that I was a Trump supporter during the election because I said mm -hmm. I would vote for Trump before I'd vote for Biden. Mm -hmm. But I didn't vote for either. Mm -hmm. I, I, the reason why I said that is like, I was like, you don't see this? Mm -hmm. Like, you guys out of your fucking mind? You don't see that this guy can't, he can't talk right anymore. Yeah. Go watch videos of him from 20 years ago. <laughs> he, was a, he was a dummy. He said a lot of silly shit. He lied about a bunch of things. Mm -hmm. But at least he was articulate. He, at least he could, like, if you see the Clarence Thomas hearing mm -hmm. where he's talking to Clarence yeah, yeah. Thomas about natural law and mm -hmm. then Clarence Thomas later is talking about it. he's like I did not know what the fuck he was talking about <laughs> but he's having this thing you know and I know what we're talking about mm -hmm. here other people might not know but you know and I know what we're talking about and Clarence Thomas is like I don't know what the fuck you're talking <laughs> about but I'm just gonna let you that was Biden his whole life mm -hmm. I mean o Obama like famously said during the election he ho hopes Joe doesn't fuck this up because that's what he did like he yeah, would he lie could, about his experience. Know, he would lie about his background and education. He would lie yes, about his he, record. I mean, he, he he would lie about all kinds of things. Yes, he, he lied about graduating in the top of his class. Yes. he lied about having more than one degree. Dude, we he used lied to about do um, marching Joe... with Mandela. Oh yeah, he lied about America. his arrests recently. He, he lied about being arrested the first time imagine, I was arrested. You know, when the people when people lie, I mean, it's it's so hard for me to put myself in the position of people that would lie like this. You know, the other one I, I think of a lot is Joy Reid at MSNBC when yeah. she wrote those homophobic things on her blog and in she 2008. She and she said she got hacked. It's like, yeah. <laughs> I can't, I, I understand white lies. I understand certain lies, but there's there's some lies where I, I, I struggle to understand what it would feel like to be the person thinking it's a good idea. I think there's people that don't value truth. Mm. They don't value <laughs> honesty. I think they just want to win. They just want to get past this problem that they're having, and they want to have a solution. What's the best solution? Well, you could say you got hacked. Let's say I got hacked. Let's go with that. And w the Biden thing is just, I think he just always wanted people to think highly of himself. Mm -hmm. We used to do this thing at Stitches Comedy Club in Boston in the 1980s, in 1988, in fact, and we called it Joe Biden Night, because Biden got busted plagiarizing other politicians' speeches. I don't mm -hmm. know if you remember that. Mm -mm. Yeah, Biden ran for president in 88, and his campaign got derailed because he was quoting, I think it was Bobby Kennedy verbatim, verbatim, and then there was someone else, I think it was an English politician, and quoting these people verbatim, like just like, stealing their speeches. And I think he blamed it on one of his speechwriters did it or whatever, but it was such a scandal that we had created Joe Biden night 
at Stitch's Comedy Club. So like I would go up and I would do your act. Mm. Like we would work together every day. Mm-hmm. I would know your act. Like I would go up and do your act and you would do my act. That's hilarious. And people would pick a person and they would go up and do their act. And for us it was a howl. Cause like you would see like Kevin Knox going up there doing Steve Sweeney's act. Mm-hmm. And it was a thing. Like that's how much he was known of as a goof then. Wow. So when you say like he's been in politics his whole life, yeah. Yeah, but that's not the best example. I think Bernie mm-hmm. Sanders mm-hmm. would be the best example. Right. Because Bernie Sanders, whether you love him or or hate him or whatever, you have to admit that the man has principles and he has been behind those principles and he's been incredibly consistent his entire right. career. Right. So if a guy like that got into office, then you're 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 talking about a man who does understand the inner workings of the system very deeply, mm-hmm. but is not full shit. And he comes across as the kind of guy that wasn't so hungry to become president. Right. Right. Like he cared more about standing for what he believed in, even if it got him no further. Yeah. And those are the types of people we actually want to promote. Yeah. Um, the problem is it's a popularity contest. And yeah. we found out through <clears throat> Trump, because tr- with Trump, it was the first time that anybody was actually popular. Mm-hmm. Entered into the popularity contest, right? These other people were amateurs mm-hmm. in, in terms of like manipulation of the public's perception They were mm-hmm. amateurs compared to Trump. Yeah, Trump was the year fired guy mm-hmm. like he was all he over was television Oh my god, he, he had was great like the, um, I always felt about him like I felt about that bully in high school That's he, he's a bully, but he's so funny. He kind of gets away with it. Yes, and you kind of find yourself laughing at him Yeah, despite yourself and despite the fact that you know, he's just Deep down, he's not a good guy. Exactly. Exactly. And you justify him not being a good guy because he's in a dirty business. Yeah. You know? Yeah. He's like the Lance Armstrong of politics. Yeah. Like, how did Lance Armstrong win Tour de France? Well, he he doped. He did drugs. He did steroids. But everybody else was, too. Well, okay. You know? Like right. Paul, you know, Trump was a businessman. He was lying, cheating, and stealing. But fucking everybody else did, too. Yeah. You know, that was I mean, kind of the way he we did lie way more often and way more just like and he's better at it. He, yeah, <laughs> he was really I mean, I'll say my favorite thing Trump did, like the only of his trolls that I want to make a case was good for the world and good for the country was when uh, it was 2020 and every institution in the country was releasing a fake statement about how they were systemically racist and we're going to do better, and they really cared. Every corporation mm. that only wants your money was releasing this fake corporate woke thing. And and Princeton University, the president of Princeton University released a statement saying, Princeton University is systemically racist. Uh, this racism harms our black students here, and it's the racism is embedded in the structure of the university itself. And then Trump said, all right, well, if, if you're confessing, I'm going to get the Department of Education to investigate you and see if you're violating civil rights laws. We have many robust civil rights laws in this country that are specifically put in place so that institutions that get federal funding, like Princeton, do not violate the civil rights of its students. Of course, it was a completely bullshit investigation. Trump did not expect to find any racism at you know, a hyper-progressive Ivy League school, at least not any racism against black students. It was also a bullshit statement by by the the president of the university, but it was it was a perfect strategy for ex- exposing the fundamental insincerity 
of, yeah. of the most people who use this term. It's like, can you imagine if the Pope like admitted, publicly confessed that the Catholic Church has like this huge institutional pedophilia problem, and then the cop said, "Thank you for your confession. We're going to go investigate this. Hope you cooperate." And the Pope said, "Oh, what, 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 what do you mean? No, don't don't investigate us. We we didn't really mean it. We were just we just meant like pedophilia, not like fucking kids." It's like that's what the Prince and guy does. He goes, right. "Oh no 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 no, we're not like actually racist. We're just like saying that thing that everyone's saying that is that nobody means." So that that was a troll that at minimum, like no, it, it was no president should use resources in that way, and it, it was totally immature, but it did expose uh, a hypocrisy which is that so many people are ready to condemn themselves as and their institutions as systemically racist, even when they know they've been doing everything in their power for the past decade or maybe sometimes several decades to be as inclusive as possible to black and Hispanic people and to Asians. And um, well, to Asians, the Asians, the weird one, right? Especially with Harvard, mm -hmm. but there's discrimination allegedly against Asians in Harvard because they do so well. They try to make less of them get in. Yeah, like they've they've tailored right. their their whole enrollment process mm -hmm. so that it favors certain things that they think they can uh, at least limit the amount of Asian people that are because they're doing so well. And again, it's not to single out Harvard, really, because the vast majority of elite schools do this. There's a graph, I, I want to say it was from The Economist magazine, but there's a graph of California schools and uh, the percentage of, percentage of Asian students at the school. And there's one school, Caltech, which has uh, uniquely among California schools in, in its class not really practiced very much racial rigging, right? And so as the percentage of Asian immigrants increased to this country, you could see the, per the percentage of Asians at Caltech is, is just rising in tandem, like, like you might logically expect. Whereas every other s school, it's magically just staying flat as more and more Asians pouring into the country. Somehow <laughs> it's staying at like 14% of your school. It's very strange. Um, I mean, this has been true of elite schools for a 100 years. It's like Malcolm Gladwell had this amazing essay, I think, in The New Yorker, Oh, maybe over a decade ago, where he traces the origin of the essay requirements, right? Why, 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 do, why do colleges require you to like write essays? Why not just go by the test? Well, that came about because they needed a way of excluding or minimizing the number of Jews. Jews were the Asians of that era in terms of they were, they were getting, they were testing very high and getting into these spaces that Protestants uh, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants really wanted, di didn't like them so much and were uncomfortable with them and they weren't, you know, our people in, in a way. And so they introduced essays, um, you know, extracurricular requirements. How are, how are the essays supposed to stop Jews from getting in? Because you can read through the lines of who someone is, you know, if you ask them personal questions about, about, uh, Oh, so through those essays, their Judaism would be exposed, and that's how they're discriminating? Mm-hmm. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. What's going on today is like a discriminatory, it's a discrimination McCarthyism almost. Mm -hmm. It's like we're looking for discrimination constantly, even though it 
does exist. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of discrimination. There's plenty of racism. Plenty sure. of plenty of like legitimate homophobia, right? Mm-hmm. But then we're looking for it everywhere too, and everyone's trying to uh, make these grand statements that they're not a part of the problem. And mm-hmm. then if you don't do that, silence is violence, mm-hmm. and that's that's an issue too. That that Barry Weiss speech on CNN was so fucking fantastic when Brian Stelter was like, oh my God. See if you can find it, Jamie. It's, uh, well, it's on my Instagram. If you see uh, Brian St- Stelter's cherub face and uh, Barry Weiss on the other side of the screen. But she's basically like calling out how the world's gone mad. Mm-hmm. And silence is violence is one of the things that she lists in this incredible rant that she goes on. I, I forgot to ask her. I've, I still haven't asked her whether or not she, here, play this out of Americans who aren't on the hard left or the hard right who feel the world has gone mad. So in what ways has the world gone mad? Well, you know, when you have the chief reporter on the beat of COVID for the New York Times talking about how questioning or pursuing the question of the lab leak is racist, the world has gone mad. When you're not able to say out loud and in public that there are differences between men and women, the world has gone mad. When we're not allowed to acknowledge that rioting is rioting and it is bad, and that silence is not violence, but violence is violence, the world has gone mad. When we're not able to say that Hunter Biden's laptop is a story worth pursuing, the world has gone mad. When in the name of progress, young school children, as young as kindergarten, are being separated in public schools because of their race, and that is called progress rather than segregation, the world has gone mad. There mm. are dozens of examples that I could share with, with you and with and your you viewers. And you often say, you say allowed. Everyone sort of knows this. And you say we're not allowed, we're not able. Between... Who's the people stopping the conversation? Who are they? <laughs> um, people let work at networks, <laughs> frankly, like the one I'm speaking on right now, who try and claim. That's perfect. Perfect Ooh, they, example. They don't exist. That's why they hate me. They can't talk. They have mm. these shitty conversations. It's yeah. like, let her talk. Like, they don't. That's such a bad format. It's not even his fault, really. That's a, the worst format ever, mm-hmm. where you're not even in the room with someone. Like, mm-hmm. everything's at a handicap. You're yeah. not in the room with someone. You're, 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 you have a thing in your ear where you're listening to them, and they're listening to you. And it's on a delay always. Yeah. It's horrible. How have they not figured out the fucking delay? 2022. I think they're going to do something where they're transitioning into this uh, CNN Plus thing, which uh, you know, I know they have a, a show they're going to do with Don Lemon on CNN Plus. And CNN Plus is a, a, scr- a streaming platform. And I think that when they're no longer um, saddled down to this, uh, this format that they have, where you have like seven-minute segments followed mm-hmm. by commercial, I think they'll be freer to expand on ideas and have real conversations and hopefully the coverage and the content will elevate mm-hmm. and you'll they'll start there's it's not like there's a shortage of intelligent articulate pe- people out there there's plenty of them no i mean intelligence is almost never the problem right in the in these scenarios you know it's what it is is n- nobody has an incentive to be the first person to raise a point on the other side right it's right like i i had this guy uh, jeff mauer on my podcast couple weeks ago and he's he he used to be the senior writer for john oliver's uh show and you know like you don't want to be the first writer to ask wait are republicans right about that fact right 
because you know the odds even if the odds are are low that you, you know people start talking about you you start uh people pass you over for a promotion because they see you as a kind of right-wing guy or something it's not worth taking the risk there's a thing that people do where they think you're secretly right-wing mm -hmm. which is hilarious i've mm -hmm. seen that on twitter before people call someone like a fake progressive mm -hmm. they're like oh yeah you fake progressive like what <laughs> who's aping progressivism like who's f who's pretending who's out there pretending who's pretending to be a republican when they're really like secretly a liberal like what is that real i think some people really i don't know what are, the, are they on like cnn or fox news or something like that where they have like they have to be committed to a certain ideology yeah like public job? people public people but really I, think, I don't know you think it's fake progressives you think there's people out there well, that are pretending to be progressive don't i mean so what do you think barack obama thought about gay marriage in in like 2008 that's a good point you know like do right. you think he was really against it in his bones right. and he had a right. epiphany yeah that's a good point you know and so like that's just, a political position though as a candidate i think that's different i and i mean really it shouldn't be oh, right yeah well but, but i mean as a someone who's a, a talker mm -hmm. someone who's just a, a commentator i think right or but you, but you see it with people just t tweeting Mm -hmm. Like they don't even have any skin in the game. They're just, mm -hmm. they're not even players. They're just they're like LARPing, you mm -hmm. know, and, and people call them a fake progressive. Yeah, progressives are very hard on one another. Yeah, they'll <laughs> it's so eat judgmental. Their own. They're so judgmental. It's it's interesting. It's like the the left has become this censoring uh, anti free speech, anti uh, like they they have like very rigid guidelines or guardrails that you're supposed to stay inside of when you have certain discussions. Mm -hmm. And it didn't used to be that way. It didn't used no, to I mean, the, the like Bill Maher is one of the last of the old school liberals mm -hmm. who will still call out the left, call out like ridiculous left-wing politics and left-wing policies. But there is a backlash happening now and it's getting less and less credible to dismiss it as white supremacy in the alt-right um, because, you know, just yesterday or the day before uh three members of the san francisco uh i think um the, the board of educators or or uh, whoever's in charge of education in, in san francisco three of them were recalled uh by voters largely because the asian uh, population of san francisco which is like 30 percent of the city or, or, or something uh really did not like their progressive policies you know they're they're they were trying to they were more focused on renaming uh, uh, schools with with more progressive people at the head than they were in reopening schools. They got rid of the test that was used to determine which students get into the elite high school because there were too many Asians, and they made it into a lottery instead of a test. Um, uh, really? Uh, yeah, yeah. A yeah. lottery? They made it to a lottery instead of a test, pushing down the numbers of Asians, increasing the numbers of black and Hispanic kids. Didn't they do something in New York City recently where they uh, eliminated uh, advanced classes? I'm not sure if they have gifted, gifted classes or something I'm like that. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I know Eric Adams is tends to be opposed to all those kinds of things. Um I think it was before he got in. Maybe it was. Here yeah. it is. New York City outlines next <coughs> that step is right. to I replace now. gifted and talented program. New York City will phase out gifted and talented classes in its schools, opting to end a program that critics say entrenched racial, racial divides in the nation's larger public school system. 
So this is, I mean, to me, there's this constant slander of standardized tests as racist, right? Because on average, black kids don't do as well on them as white kids. And for what it's worth, white kids on average don't do as well as Asian kids. And that disparity is seen by people as evidence of structural systemic racism. Um, You know, one point to make is that these tests initially came out, you know, back in the early 20th century as an effort to identify talented kids from underprivileged backgrounds, right? Like, you know, smart kids that the system otherwise wouldn't realize are that smart um, and bring them into environments uh, with other really smart kids. Like my mom grew up in the South Bronx. She she went to like totally really chaotic home, South Bronx in in the 60s, and she took a test and got into Stuyvesant, right? And back then, Stuyvesant had a, a very robust percentage of black, black and Hispanic kids. Um, and a lot of them came from underprivileged backgrounds and got in because of the test, right? Like the test is not racist. And, and Eric Adams understands that. And, and, you know, he was Eric Adams in, in New York. He ran on this anti-crime platform. We're going to keep the tests the way they are. We're basically not going to bow to anything progressive. And he was elected. The black and Hispanic population of New York came to the polls and said, we want that guy. In San Francisco, you know, the 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 uh, people in charge of education are saying, we're getting rid of the tests. We're doing all this progressive stuff. Um, one of them basically, I think Allison Collins was her name. She tweeted and, and I think later deleted something saying, Asians are pretty much like white supremacist adjacent, and they're like, um, uh, they're 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 using the techniques of white supremacy in order to succeed in our in in the country, and they're akin to the house slaves of the past that used to get close to the masters. They're house enters, in other words. Whoa! And she tweeted that Asian community mobilized. They said, you know, these people discriminate against us. They treat us like foreigners. Uh, fuck them. Let's replace them. And they did. And so the backlash against progressivism, the number one argument people have is it's a racist backlash, right? It's just an explosion of alt-right, you know, white supremacy, QAnon types that are mobilizing and trying to attack progressives. How do you make that argument make any sense when you have black and Hispanic people in New York rushing to elect Eric Adams, Asians in San Francisco, a very liberal city, um, getting rid of the progressive school board. You know, how many more of these things have to happen before we realize there is a serious and legitimate argument, a good faith argument to be had about all of these progressive positions, and you can't just shut people up by calling them racist? There's definitely a serious and real argument against a lot of these progressive positions, and you definitely have both things happening. You definitely do have people who are closed-minded who are attacking these things because they don't want open-minded pr- perspectives they don't they don't want open-minded perspectives being talked about and they they want to keep the worlds in a in a sort of narrow lane but then they have a lot of people that are uh, particularly in some communities where people are struggling and working hard and they they want to be acknowledged for their efforts and they don't want to be boxed in by these crazy type of rules where they're getting rid of gifted classes and they're 
making you know a, a fucking lottery, which is the craziest idea I've ever heard for people to get into colleges. That's nuts. Like, what what is the purpose of working hard? You're supposed to reward people. Mm -hmm. This idea of equality of outcome, like Jordan Peterson talks about this a lot. How how dangerous it is to have a quality of outcome. And you know, my perspective has always been that you can't have a quality of outcome unless you have a quality of effort. And then you have to have a quality of opportunity. And those things aren't real. Like mm -hmm. you know, you you can't have. You're never going to have. There's you're going to have obsessed people. You're going to have these folks that figure out a way to be far more successful than other people. That's one of the reasons why we love sports. When you have a guy like a Michael Jordan who's just so obsessed with victory and you can see it in his eyes, this laser focus and figures out a way to be substantially better than everybody else. That's magic for us. We love super winners. Mm -hmm. We love and that's equality of outcome eliminates that. Mm -hmm. you, the sports are the great testing ground for effort and all the factors, genetics, intelligence, coaching, technique, the ability to assess problems accurately, mm -hmm. the great testing ground for that. And when you're a person who wants to think that a quality of outcome is a possibility, that, that's what flies in your face. The philosopher Robert Nozick, famous philosopher, used to use this thought experiment um, about justice. And he would basically, I think at that time, he used like Wilt Chamberlain as the example because was, that was a time. But, you know, if you think about the NBA, no one really, very few people are upset at LeBron James, you know, Kobe Bryant, RIP, and, all, all, you know, others for the fact that they make so much money because you can see how much better they are than you at the thing and you know that the process by which they got from A to B is untamperable, right? There yes. is there was n there is no paying your way into right. being great in the NBA. There is there is certainly uh you know the luck of genetics, but then there's there's a lot of genetic great athletes in the world. The ones that make it there, it's like you know sweat equity is is what got them there. And so people have a sense that the process is fair. And when people feel the process is fair, they don't care about whether the result is equal. You take it to m most other domains in life, people are not sure the process is fair. And um, I think that is, that's the key difference between when people look at unequal results and complain and when they look un un unequal results and don't. And I think there is far too much of focus on results. What we really care about as human beings is that the process is fair. So we should be focused on making processes fair rather than simply looking at the results as if that's the indicator of fairness. Yeah, and opportunities. <coughs> the, the equality of opportunity, if, if possible to achieve, would be the most noble goal. Like give people an opportunity to try things, give people an opportunity to experience things, give people an opportunity to learn. And that's not the case. You know, there's there's a giant disparity between good schools and bad schools. Mm -hmm. And that's not an insurmountable obstacle. That's not something that can't be fixed. That seems difficult like to fix though. Very difficult to yeah. fix. But it's it's not breathing underwater. It's workable. Yeah. It can be done. You know, mm -hmm. it, you know, it, it things change over long periods of time because the economics of a region change, <laughs> industries move in, you know, job opportunities open up, things change. But 
it, there's certain things in this country that just have been stagnant. There's certain areas that have been stagnant. And when people talk about equality, that's where it's all fucked. It's not all fucked in equality of outcome. It's all fucked in equality of opportunity. Equality of opportunity, though, is, you know, it... You're never going to fully achieve We're never going to fully achieve it, for sure, because so much of what matters in life is an effect of the private domain. It's like, yeah. how were your, how did your right. parents raise right. you? Right, What kind of loving you know, environment did you come from? Were you abused? Right. Like, the fact that I had two parents, um, you know, that were highly focused on my education, that were teaching me math and reading me books before I got to kindergarten... Um, that cre that had high expectations. So if I came home with like, I couldn't I couldn't just like come home with a B and be congratulated, right? Like right. I wouldn't. That's the household I grew up in. It's a household uh, a, a lot of a lot of people grow up in, including many of the the Asian families that get their kids into the elite high schools in San Francisco and New York and so forth. Um, you know, it's very difficult to substitute for that because so much of what builds you, your incentives, your personality, what you care about, your values, isn't mediated by policy or by the government, but but rather in the home. And it's it's very difficult for the government to reach into the home and and uh, you know change those variables for the better. Yeah, it's not going to happen. We don't respect the government enough to ever allow them to do that anyway. Yeah, that's a undeniable <laughs> aspect of being a person. That how your parents treat you, how you are educated in the home how, how you how your parents view problems how they handle things so there there was this article in the new york times from a few years ago that i'll never forget because of you know it's one of those articles where you could tell they have a huge problem with people not pointing out common sense points right the point of the article was new york's elite high schools have a problem uh there's not enough black kids asian kids are um essentially unfairly in some way dominating that these schools and it talked about one asian family and it said many no actually talked about lots of them it said something like many asian families scrimp on essentials like food like food in order to pay for test prep that's almost an exact quote from the article in the next paragraph it talks about how the Asian kids have some kind of unfair advantage that can't be expected of black and Hispanic kids making these same tests. It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. The last sentence you just said, they have to eat less food in order to pay for fucking test prep. And now you're telling me they're privileged? There's a lot of poor Asians in New York. Um, but and, is, and there is a cognitive dissonance. There is a privilege yeah. in being raised by families that expect a lot from Correct. you and then put a, a large emphasis on education. Correct. That is one of the deepest privileges that you can have. Yeah, and that's what Asian communities have. Um, that's not the kind of privilege this article is talking about right. necessarily. They were right. trying to say there's some kind of systemic leg up that we're giving these Asian families that are like living above a, a, a cleaners and like. Yeah. Do you know that's why? That's that thing that they do. There's a thing that happens when uh, progressive people discuss ideas where they won't go any further. Mm -hmm. Like they won't say Baldemart. They, mm -hmm. they get to this like spot and they just like assume that everybody who is also subscribing the same ideology as them 
will allow them to get away with this sort of like weird uh, cognitive transgression mm-hmm. by not exploring this idea, by not not recognizing that you just contradicted yourself. Mm-hmm. You're literally just talking about they're so poor they can't even afford food, but they decide they'll they'll eat less food to have their kids have good preparation for for tests. Yeah, let's make it harder for them to get in. <laughs> Jesus Christ. But this the hard work <laughs> Um, that, I mean, I grew up around a lot of Koreans because, uh, I was involved in Taekwondo really mm-hmm. early on. I, I was a junior black belt Taekwondo. Oh, really? Actually, as a All kid, right. yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and I always talk about my friend Jungsik, who was a national champion while he was going through, um, his, uh, medical residency. And he was, uh, testing, like going through, uh, college and he would put his backpack on filled with books and run the stairs for exercise sometimes and he was a national champion mm. and he he was like no matter like he was explaining to me like what it was like growing up in his house and like no matter what he did it wasn't hard enough yeah. it wouldn't it was not he didn't work hard enough like his father was relentless mm-hmm. and that this ethic was pushed into his head at an early age like i always thought that i was lazy mm-hmm. I, oh i was so disciplined mm-hmm. but i thought i was lazy and compared to him mm-hmm. because compared to a regular person i was crazy disciplined mm-hmm. but, but compared to him i'm like oh my god i'm so lazy like i literally had because he was a, a good friend of mine i had this guy as an example of like this impossible work ethic mm-hmm. and because i wanted to sleep eight hours a day i thought i was a lazy piece of shit mm-hmm. That's the power of culture. Yeah, yeah. The power of culture and expectations. Absolutely. You can't, you can't fix that. I mean, you can't, you're, ne- you're never going to. Be, I mean, that would take for fucking ever. And mm-hmm. also there's an immigrant mentality, like my friend Joey Diaz likes to call it, an immigrant mentality. Mm-hmm. Like people who come here from another country specifically to do better. Because yep. they want, they, they live in a place where they don't like how things are. And they're like, we're going to uproot ourselves and move to a place where we don't understand the fucking language. And we're going to learn the language. And you know, the children of those people and the grandchildren of those people, they have specific advantages in that. There's a, a drive that's imparted in them. I think that, I mean, that's probably my my most left-wing position is how pro-immigration I am, I would yeah. say. Like, I'm I'm probably left of the Democratic Party in terms of how good I think immigration is for this country. Um, if it's legal, certainly. I mean, we should we, we should be able to choose and have a system for who comes here. I'm, I'm completely in support of that. But, you know, if we had that, I would be in favor of totally ramping up the the... the you know, the number of immigrants we bring here. I think it's our great strength as a nation that people from all over the world want to come here, you know, contribute to our economy, um, make us competitive, uh, increase our population, help us compete with, with China um, as, as the global dominant power. Um, you know, I, I, mean, I think obviously so many people are anti-immigration in this country that practically speaking, you can't get elected talking how I'm talking, but th- that is really what I think deep down. I think people are wrong to to be as resistant to immigration as they are. Um, I think, you know, the kids of immigrants assimilate remarkably well to American culture. They speak English. They are attracted to the freedom that we have here. Like, America is an attractive alternative to the rest of the world. That's a fact. Yeah. Um, people want to come here, including, you know, 
Africans, you know, South Asians, people of color that are coming to this, this allegedly horribly racist society. Well, they see something here that some kind of opportunity here that the rest of the world or, or at least many places in the world lack. And I think like we make it too hard for people to come here legally. There are too many loopholes. There's too many, too many ways in which it's just like you hear horror stories of people with, you know, visa problems, people, people that we absolutely want to incentivize to come here, right? Selfishly, right? There's this attitude that immigration is like this gift we're giving to others. No, we're taking, we're like getting one over as a country on the rest of the world by taking people who want to come here in. And I know, I mean, I know that's, like I say, that's probably my most left-oriented position uh, is is immigration. I completely agree with you. And I think that to compete, like if you want to compete in anything, you want to be around people that are obsessed, that really want to do well. You want mm-hmm. to be around people that are really willing and to put in the work, really willing to come to another place that is uh, another continent, come over on a boat or on an airplane or even make your way up across the border. Those fucking people are mm-hmm. driven. Mm-hmm. They're driven. And that's what you want to be around. I mean, that's what totally. everybody should want. We, if, if you want to leave, your, you, you're stuck in a spot. Like, what, what should you do? Should you build up your village in Guatemala and make it like New York City? The fuck out of here. <laughs> you don't have any time for that. Yeah. You got to get to Manhattan. Right. You know, like, we should embrace those people because those people, they have, they have the courage they have the motivation, they have the drive to leave the land of their birth mm-hmm. and to try to make it in this ideal of what America is. And some of the most fiercely patriotic people that I've ever met have come here from communist countries. Yeah, totally. My friends that have come here from Russia, my friends that have come here from different Eastern Bloc countries or who have parents that experienced communism, mm-hmm. people from Cuba, they are fiercely patriotic, fiercely pro-American. Mm-hmm. And those are the kind of people that you want to come over here. You want them to come over here and raise the bar and, and bring that vibration of, of vibrancy of someone who wants to excel. Yeah. You come here because you want to do better for you, you want to do better for your family, mm-hmm. and you want to come over, go, You want to come to America to kick ass. Yep. They don't come to America to take a nap. Right. They come to America to or kick to, ass. Or to sap us of our resources. I mean, so I think a lot of people on the right, they oppose immigration I think somewhere in them they feel if we let all these people in from country like communist countries like China, they're going to turn America communist. They're going to bring their values with them and slowly but surely basically all the values that people on the right hold dear are going to just be outnumbered by this influx of people from other parts of the world that don't have these values. Right? You're coming from a yeah. country that's a dictatorship, no freedom. You're, you know, um, and, and people are worried. I get that. The problem with that argument is, first of all, the people who come here come here because they like here, right? They yeah. like what we're doing here, which means you can't take the average foreigner from a country and expect that that's the person that's coming to America. No, it's, it's not the median person. It's the person that sees something of value here that they don't see in their homeland. Right. That's one thing. The second thing is the moment you have kids, these second generation immigrants, 
they're more fluent in English usually than they are in, in, in the language of their parents. And that's a deeper point than just the language. It's not just that the language is some exception to an other, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a rule of thumb where they otherwise are more attached to their homeland values. It's that uh, language is a proxy for the fact that they're absorbing American culture primarily because they grew up young here, right? Yeah. And so I, I think that that argument, I, I understand why people are afraid of it, but it just hasn't been proven true. Like I ju- we just talked about San Francisco, right? Who is the reason that they voted out hyper-progressive uh, school board members, right? Asian Americans, many of whom were actually first generation, right? They were using Chinese ballots, okay? So if you're conservative, that's afraid letting more letting in more people is going to destroy the country. I mean, that's a perfect rejoinder to your concern right there. Well, not only that, but America is unique in the fact that it is literally a nation of immigrants. Mm-hmm. The entire country is founded, except unless you're Native American, mm-hmm. you've come from somewhere else, mm-hmm. whether it's your grandparents or your parents or your great-grandparents. Someone came from somewhere else and built every fucking city here. Mm-hmm. It is, it's so to say, we got enough. We're full now. It, it, it betrays the ideals that the entire country was founded on. And there's a lot of people that live in places where um, maybe they're relying upon a specific industry and they're worried that someone's going to come here and work for less mm-hmm. and they're going to take away their quality of life. Mm-hmm. And that's a fear-based perspective. Mm-hmm. They're gonna do that. But that can be solved with unions. That can be solved with the, the way, you know, people have a, a relationship with their employers and that the employers have a relationship with the people in their community. And you can embrace immigrants as being a part of that because you need more skilled people, more ambitious people. It's good for everybody. Mm-hmm. The idea that it's not good for everybody is a is a famine-based perspective. And yeah. almost all famine-based perspectives are terrible. Yeah. Because you're just like, oh, what do, what do we do? We've got to prepare for the worst. Like, mm-hmm. it, 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 abundance perspectives are the best when it comes to like advancing a country mm-hmm. if you want if you want the country to kick ass you want more people over here that have the desire to kick ass who has a desire to kick ass more than someone who leaves their fucking country mm-hmm. leaves their country You're, you 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 don't even speak the language that good mm-hmm. and you come over here just because you think you have more opportunity that's us that's america that is as american as it gets that's a fucking eagle holding a gun right. that's american right Absolutely. And, and, you know, you know the, the other part, part of this that's interesting to me is, um, like, what are the cultural attitudes of immigrants that come from, you know, South Asia, East Asia, South America, Africa? Are they woke? Fuck no, they're not. Are right. you kidding? You know, it's the opposite. There is this, I think there's this lazy assumption that Democrats make. And this is actually an argument that's been made by some prominent uh, uh, liberal writers and and Democratic advocates is that the way we're going to beat the Republicans is by importing people of color. And they're going to be Democrats by default because Republicans are racist. They're going to run from Republicans. Um, We're going to import people of color. And that's how we're going to beat them. It's a pure numbers game, right? The lazy assumption here is that 
immigrants who are people of color are basically going to vote like black Americans, like like a democratic bloc, right? Rather than be persuadable voters that are voting on, that can easily be persuaded to vote Republican, right? And that have cultural values that are sometimes more aligned with conservatives and liberals on certain issues. Um, and, it, you know, it's connected to this this general way in which I think white Americans get um, skewered for flaws such as racism that are actually universal human flaws, right? It's like, go anywhere in the world, you're going to find bigotry. Um, you're going to find, I mean, if, if you zoom out and talk about historical evils, genocide, slavery, right? These are things that have been going on since the beginning of recorded history on every inhabited continent, right? There's this great book by uh, Orlando Patterson, who's a Harvard sociologist, called Slavery and Social Death. It's like this 500-page tome on slavery. And it has a database in the back of the book of every known example, a recorded example of slavery since people began writing things down. Um, and it's just immense, right? It's, it's immense. Like the, 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 the normality of cruelty and dominance and killing throughout human history, um, it just, it boggles the mind. And one thing I've encountered is that there are people that are extremely parochial in a sense that they almost don't know slavery happened anywhere else in the world. Mm. Right? Yeah, um, I've heard that argument made. It's a hilarious argument. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's extraordinarily ignorant. Especially when you consider the fact that there's literally more slaves today in the world than there <laughs> were before slavery was abolished in the United States. Is that true? Yeah. I, I didn't realize there was that many. Yeah, let's see still. if that's true. Let's make sure that's true. Do you, you saw, I'm sure you saw the open markets for slavery in Libya, mm -hmm. which is bananas because yeah. you're watching slave markets on YouTube. Yeah. Which it's the and we we talk about slavery like it's, I mean it's in the past tense in our heads. You think right. slavery in the past tense? We abolished it. Um, well, there's sex slaves in that exist today too. Mm -hmm. Like there was this big bust in Los Angeles recently. There was like 80 people mm. that were 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 busted or were, were freed rather who were sex slaves. They were basically being sex trafficked, mm -hmm. which is fucking bizarre. Like that, there's slaves. Right. There's people that people have captured. And they force them into this sexual servitude. Yeah. How many, what is it? I didn't catch the specific. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, there are more slaves today than before slavery was abolished oh. in the United States, in uh, the world. Okay. There's more slaves today in the world, globally. I just think that it's it's just not an open market the mm -hmm. way it was in the 1700s. Right. It, but it's it seems to be. This gets back to your point of like people. I, yeah, I mean, I, I googled that, but it's like this is what popped up. There's okay, slaves in lots of countries, apparently. I don't yeah, know. India's home to the largest number of slaves globally with eight million. Holy fuck, eight million! Followed by China with three point eight million, Pakistan three million, North Korea two million, Nigeria one point three million, Iran one point two million, Indonesia one point two. Holy fuck! Democratic Republic of the Congo one million, Russia seven hundred ninety-four thousand slaves. That is fucking insane. 
There are yeah, 29.8 million people living as slaves right now, according to a comprehensive new report issued by the Australia-based Walk Free, Walk Free Foundation. This is not some softened by modern standards definition of slavery. Actual slaves. Yeah. Fucking insane. Okay, there's, here's so one that 40 says million. 40 million. So I, th I believe 10 to 12 million slaves were taken to the West from Africa. And something like 14 million were taken to the Arab world from, from Africa. So this is so, where that statistic comes yeah, from. Yeah, that, that would seem to check out. I mean, so this, this, this goes back to your point about people miscalibrating small problems and large problems, right? Uh, you know, we had the 1619 Project uh, in, in 2019, which, uh, you know, a series of articles and poems and essays and podcasts designed to retell the American story centering slavery. That's how it was branded, essentially. And they, I mean, they pushed this rewrite of history where the colonies revolted against the British in order to preserve slavery, which is not true. And, you know, in general, the, the, the general tenor of this, I mean, there, there was some really good work done in, in this project, but the general tenor of this was to get people to see American slavery in the smallest, minute, most minute details, right? So there was one article by Matthew Desmond, which tried to argue that Microsoft Excel spreadsheets are very similar and have their root in the kinds of um, accounting systems that slave masters would use, right? So that you can see the legacy of slavery in an Excel spreadsheet, right? Like that was a serious argument that was made. And you know, I just thought to myself, what, what the hell is going on? That you're, you're asking me to see slavery in an Excel spreadsheet? <laughs> That's how trivial we've gotten? Like there, there's, no other society that for any other reason use the concept of like intersecting lines to account for shit like really that that's what passes muster as a connection between our current society and our legacy of slavery meanwhile i'm not aware of a single line in this project that's pulitzer prize winning where they so much as acknowledged that modern slaves still exist right mm. Which seems like a a moral miscalibration to me. Do you think that what's happening with people uh, with this uh, discrimination against immigration is a fear that they're, in a sense, bribing people from um, Central America and South America that are coming up through the the border? They're allowing them to come in and then. This, this is the, the fear that they're going to allow them to vote. And the conceit is, we're going to allow you to vote, but remember who got you in here. The mm. Democrats got you in here. Mm -hmm. We're the one who've allowed you to come through the border, even though you're illegal, and distributed you throughout the, the country. Mm -hmm. this, that's the big fear right. that I think a lot of Republicans have about, particularly what's happening at the South border. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's valid. Um, you know having a huge influx of illegal immigration you know there's there's no doubt that the motives of people who want folks to vote it's like politicians want to win and they left or right they will often try to rejigger the election laws that they can legally change 
to give themselves a leg up. Um, Republicans do this. Um, I, I don't think it works so well. They try. Democrats do this. Um, and I think that's a valid concern. Like To have a border, to be able to choose to let people in is, is fundamental. Um, so I, I definitely wouldn't quibble with that. It, it's just, you know, w- if we had that, the level of immigration I would calibrate to, I think would be way higher than most people. Cause I'm, I'm real. I really think people far, far overestimate the costs of immigration and far underestimate the benefits. Have you ever seen the documentary, a uh, day without Mexicans? No. It's a documentary about Los Angeles. Like, what would happen if there was no Mexicans in Los Angeles? And essentially, <laughs> everything would fall apart. Yeah. Everything Jesus was Christ. shut down. So, if you are, like, if you're anti Mexican immigration and you mm-hmm. live in Los Angeles, you should probably move because you're anti LA. Like, right. the fucking whole thing is run by immigrants. And right. The, the Miami. number. Oh, my God. Well, Miami is fascinating <laughs> because it's a lot of Cuban immigrants who mm-hmm. are very right wing. Yep. I mean, they've experienced the reality of actual socialism, actual communism, mm-hmm. actual dictatorships, and they are not interested in that shit. Mm-hmm. They are very, very pro-democracy, pro-United States, and they they came over here for a very, very good reason and with great cost. Mm-hmm. You know, And I think, uh, ultimately, this thing that they're doing with uh, letting, I, I don't know exactly what is happening, that's part of the problem. Like, there's rumors about what's happening, versus what's actually happening at the southern border. You know, the rumors are they're taking people, they're letting, they're processing them, letting them through, and then putting them on buses and distributing them around the country. And then there's also these people that think you shouldn't have to be a United States citizen in order to vote. Well, if you put those two things together, I could see where you're kind of allowing, you know, you see people coming across with Biden Harris T-shirts on, mm. and you gotta wonder, okay, well, who gave them to them? <laughs> like, is it like, is this something you get? Is there like a guy who's got a, a stop at the side of the road? And are you guys making it across the border? Get your uniform. You got a, a Biden Harris T-shirt for you. Mm-hmm. I mean, if if there really is some sort of a concerted effort to bring people over here with the the goal of stacking the deck mm-hmm. in these democratic cities and, ma- and making sure they're not taken over by Republicans because you're going to allow people who are illegal immigrants to vote. And the conceit is, since you let them in, they're going to vote for you. Mm-hmm. That's where things get a little squirrely. One, I would, you know, I'm not even so sure they, they would vote for you. <laughs> it's the thing that's like you ask a lot of immigrants what they think about cultural issues, about social issues. The, the, <laughs> And what comes out of their mouths is often the least politically correct, least woke thing you could possibly think of, right? right? Which doesn't mean they would vote Republican necessarily. It just means I think they're way more up for grabs than Democrats want to admit. I mean, I remember <laughs> my favorite New York cab story, having lived in the city for maybe eight years. I get in, I get into a cab with this guy who seems like maybe... Eastern or Southern European, like maybe Greek or maybe something like that. And he's one of these cab drivers that is kind of spiritual, kind of wants to talk to you, have like a little bit of a deep conversation, has some wisdom. <laughs> and so I was, I was in the mood for it. I was like, all right, let's get, let's get deep. We start talking about some stuff, like having a really good conversation, talking about life and uh, talking about where he's from, how old he is. He's like in his 50s or so. He'd been driving a cab for like 
30, a little over 30 years. So I said, what's the biggest thing that's uh, changed in this city since you started driving a cab? And without skipping a beat, he says, I picked you up, didn't I? (laughs) And we both started laughing out loud because like, on the one hand, like, you know, this is one of those comments that if it were written out the next day in the New York Times could seem racist to people out of context of the fact that we just had like a really nice heart to heart of a conversation. Um, and a laugh. And a laugh about it. Yeah. You know, and and he, he didn't hesitate. He didn't he didn't feel any guilt saying it, even though I was black. He was just like, no, whatever. Um, I mean, <laughs> I guess it's just, the basic point is. Oh, here, here's the other 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 cab story I have in New York. You learn a lot from from riding cabs, riding in the cab. The only time I've ever heard a human being say, "Go back to your country," right? Which is like a cliche of right wing bigotry, right? With like white guy right wing bigotry. Only time I've ever heard a human being say that was a black woman who was my cab driver or maybe my via driver or something and a like an indian cab driver cut her off she rolled down the fucking window and said go back to your fucking country da, 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 da. it was like the point being that bigotry and i'm not even sure if she's a bigot necessarily right she she was pissed off she had road rage but the the wider point is that bigotry and racism is talked about as if white people invented and perpetuate it and i think that that is that is a deep misunderstanding of its source in human psychology and if pinned on one group of people it, it gets under my skin because it, it it's such a deep misunderstanding of actually where hate comes from and um it prevents us from being able to sort of truly understand that bigotry is a human flaw, right? It's a flaw that all people are susceptible to. And in order to really have an honest conversation about it, it can't be a finger pointed at like, you're all the problem and we're all perfect. That is not a basis on which to start a conversation. And that's how the conversation is being had in a lot of places. That that situation is kind of interesting because you could say it's bigotry. And it 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 fits all it checks all the boxes of being bigotry, but it also could be, hey, you're a fucking asshole. You drive like a shithead. Mm-hmm. Go back to where you're from, because mm-hmm. we don't like shitheads over here. Mm-hmm. Like you could you could look at it that way. Mm-hmm. And if someone is clearly from another country, and they speak with a deep accent, are you supposed to ignore that fact when you say get the fuck out of here? Like it's a way to say get the fuck out of here. Like, stop being a dick. Mm-hmm. Like, you want to drive like that? Go back to where you're from. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's one of those things. It's like, <clears throat> she doesn't want to be around people that cut her off. Mm-hmm. If you come over here and everybody who comes over here starts cutting people off. <laughs> the thing about way people drive in other countries, uh, have you ever been to Mexico City? Never. Wild. Wild place. 
first of all, crazy pollution. Yeah. Like pollution that gives you a headache. Jesus. You're like, holy fuck. I flew in, and as I was flying in, I couldn't believe it. So I was taking photos from the plane. I was like, mm-hmm. this is bananas. I mean, just thick, dark clouds of wow. pollution. And uh, a red light is just a suggestion. I mean, you don't necessarily have to not go mm-hmm. with a red light. Like, the fuck, you know, like, in in L.A., it's it's very common where, like, say, if a light turns red and someone was about to turn, they turn anyway. Mm-hmm. They go, fuck it, I'm going to go. And they, they just go. Cause <laughs> that's, they're a self, good, that's a good L.A. Self-centered kinda. assholes. <laughs> and then they clog up the lane. People will, fuck you. They honk. <laughs> in Mexico City, that shit is normal. Mm-hmm. That's what everybody does. People right. were just, we were, I was in my car. I was in a passenger, you know, I was I was there for the UFC and when I was there there was people just they were just driving like in, into the intersection, just just cutting each other off. I was like, mm-hmm. "Wah!" Yeah. And the, the the driver was laughing. We were having fun laugh about it. And How he was is like, nobody dying? So we do. They're just good at it. Yeah. They just it's just, it's like if you've seen like in other countries where they have these crazy intersections where people just sort of figure things out. What I I remember going to Machu Picchu when I went to Peru. And you can either hike up or you can drive up on these buses. And the way you drive up is by circling, just circle, 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 circling up this mountain many times. And the road is narrow and it's a fucking mountain. You know, like you yeah. could just fucking fall off. And they do sometimes. And, and there's two-way traffic. <laughs> there's two-way traffic because, and and you can't see, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very uh, steep, you know, it's like an oval more than a circle. It's not It's not a nice. So there's these very steep, you can't see around the corner. And just, you know, one, every three or four turns, there would be another one coming. And they'd have to stop right around the corner. And I was like, oh, my God, how is this normalized? Why does this? I cannot believe this. this is normalized here. What is this? Where is this at? Uh, is in, it Paris, in Paris? At the Champs-Élysées. Yeah. yeah, look how these guys are like this scooter is just <laughs> driving in between cars. Yeah, this is just... very common in, in parts of the world. And Paris is probably not nearly as bad as like Beijing <laughs> or some places in Bangladesh. And Lord. Yeah, I mean, people get accustomed to driving around a lot of people and, and adjusting and making movements and... But those fucking scooter people are asking to die. Yeah, it's real common. See if you can find Mexico City. See if you can find an intersection in Mexico City because I was blown away. It was, I was laughing. I was laughing hard. And the driver was laughing with me because mm. he was like, "This is just how it is, Mira. Right? It's how it is here. They just they just drive like that." With, with the on the topic of the smog and the pollution, it's like this is one of those things where. Oh, let me see. That just shows a lot of. That traffic. looks really nice, actually. It's, it's great. It's Food's like fucking fantastic. If you're a fan of Mexican food, god damn it. I am. I love Mexican, I love Mexican food so food. much. The, the food in Mexico City is off the charts. There's so much variety, too. But, but we say pollution? Uh, I was going to say, yeah. So, you know, like, I think uh, I've always had this lazy assumption that we're sort of living in modernity and I'm we're we're living outside of the barbarism of the past. It's like back in the day they would split your fucking brain in half, do these horrible procedures on people. They didn't wash their hands. Um they just, you know, people lived in filth. They like shit in the streets. And thank God I live in in, in this fundamentally different time uh modernity where we've like 
gotten rid of most of the truly deranged and barbaric and you know crazy practices of the past but i see like the pollution when we enter a world where it's unthinkable to have that level of pollution in a city they're going to look back at us and say my god these people used to live in pollution and and do lobotomies on people and uh, they didn't wash their hands like that's going to be included in the laundry list of past barbaric practices and you know it makes me question whether my attitude that we are living in this other modern time is is even justified because we still have so many things to clean up so many things to figure out we do but statistically speaking it's never been safer to be a person that it's is never absolutely been safer true in terms of medicine and, and and surgeries it's never been safer in terms of the violent crime mm-hmm. and and but you're 100 percent right about pollution it's a unique aspect of a our lot of people don't want to admit that that it's that it's safer and it's yeah that's a better, weird one people don't want to admit it but it's because they don't want to they don't want to be in denial that it's still a gigantic problem that mm-hmm. violence is still a problem but um, we, we had a climate scientist on the other day, and he, he was uh, showing us there's, a one, there's an area in uh, Indiana, Evansville, Indiana, where there's seven power plants, in, uh, coal-fired power plants in a 30-mile area, and it's fucking nuts. The amount of particulate in the area in the air and on it covers things like child's pl- swing sets and shit oh and God. and the streets it's like <laughs> dust just these people it's are just horrible. breathing cold dust mm. and they all have like lung problems and it's just like it chops years off your life and these poor people are fucked and they're they're in this spot but there's still people today that like you know Trump when he was running he was uh, talk about clean coal mm-hmm. like th- that's not clean bro yeah, that's a terrible way to make energy. Mm-hmm. It's one of the worst ways in terms of like what it does to the environment, in terms of like what it pumps out into the air. But when you see this, like which is the most egregious example, this one area, Evansville, Indiana, it was horrible. Like, like, and they do interviews with these people. They talk about their chest, so they can't breathe very good. And like, oh, this is also you could use coal for power plants, like. While we're in a world that has nuclear and has mm-hmm. solar and has yeah. wind, like what the fuck? Yeah, and man. solar and wind have gotten so much cheaper. Yeah, I didn't really realize how much it was. They're as he cheap was as nuclear now. Texas, yeah. half of the grid is powered by solar and wind. Wow. And, and wind. That's amazing. Yeah, pretty insane. Yeah, and it's, uh, you know, it is a gross aspect of our culture, a very gross aspect that we're still involved in things that pollute rivers and you know fracking that pollutes uh, underground water and uh, fucks up people's drinking water we could light it on fire you ever seen that what is it gasland gasland right jamie yes yeah gasland documentary where they mm. light the water on fire as it comes oh out of a God. faucet <laughs> it's horrible yeah but gas is cheaper coleman yeah. <laughs> it's cheaper that way god what's a, what's the big deal a little pollution <laughs> you just move out of that spot. Oh, okay. You got a spot now that's gonna be fucked for the next four hundred thousand years or whatever. Yeah. Great. Terrific. But I do. I do think there's a limit to the amount of techn- technological progress that we will make. Yeah. Like I don't think it'll keep going forever. Or that. I guess what I'm saying is I. I feel like I encounter a lot of people that are sort of techno utopians. Like we'll be able to figure out 
anything we can think of now, we will eventually make. It's possible, though. But I, mean, I think there will be a limit. There, there'll be stuff we can think of that we'll never be able to do. Like what? I don't know what. I just think that if you like, if, if you assume that humans are not the most intelligent possible beings that could physically exist compatible with the laws of physics of the universe, which I think is true, like we're not sure, of course, the the most intelligent, and like it, it would stand to reason that there are things it's possible to do. There are things the laws of physics don't rule out that we simply aren't intelligent enough to do that like we aren't intelligent enough to ever figure out i think that's assuming that we're not going to merge with technology in a symbiotic way that advances our cognitive ability Mm -hmm. and i think that's inevitable but what if what if merging with technology is already something we're unable to figure out because we can't conceptually understand consciousness readily enough Hmm. Well, consciousness, whether we understand it or not, we could still manipulate it. And the thing about technology and the, the symbiotic sort of uh, f- future of humans and technology, when you talk to e- have you ever talked to Elon? No. Talk to Elon about it. He's developing Neuralink, and Neuralink is essentially going to be some sort of an implant that they um, they they cut a hole in your fucking head mm-hmm. and they put wires inside your brain and change the way you interface with information. And and he was explaining it to me, and he goes, you're gonna be able to talk without words. <laughs> and when he says you're gonna be able to talk without words, it's not like one of my stoner buddies, bro, you're gonna be able to fucking talk without words. I'm like, yeah, maybe someday. But, there's but a when way- he says it, he's got a fucking plan. And he's going to start with people that have problems with their uh, n- with neurological issues, mm-hmm. uh, p- people that have uh, n- nerve damage, mm-hmm. people that have spinal cord injuries. They're going to replace the ability to move mm-hmm. and use some sort of computer-controlled technology that replaces what the, the function of the spinal column. Then from there, they're going to move to human beings advancing their cognitive function. They're going to move to changing the way they interface with with I'm skeptical they'll get there. Why? So last year, I I got a cough. It wasn't COVID. Were you sad? Was I sad that I wasn't COVID? Yeah. A little bit, yeah. It's like, damn. <laughs> Everybody is. Everybody hopes that I just COVID. have a fucking cough. Yeah. And I went to the doctor. It just wasn't going away. You know, and I'm a, I'm a podcaster. I'm a rapper. I'm a musician. I need my voice. It wasn't going away. You still have a little cough now. I do a little bit. I is that the same cough? No, it's not the same cough. Okay. This cough is from Omicron, which I had like six weeks ago. Really? Yeah. But it, it went It had it for four weeks, lingered, went away for two weeks. So it's a it's a me thing. It's it's not COVID. Mm. It's me. All right. Uh, my coughs tend to linger a little bit for a long time. Anyway, I went to the doctor, and the doctor was very kind. He like did an X ray of my chest for free, and just 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 kind of being nice. I was like, listen, I'm a po- I really need to fucking get rid of this cough. It's been a month. I have no idea what to do. And um, he said, you know, it's it's probably just mild bronchitis. After he saw the X ray, do you want me to prescribe you anything? And I was like, what do you? Why are you asking? You're the doctor. Don't. <laughs> That's why I'm coming here is because you're supposed to say the things, right. tell me the things. And he's like, I don't know, man. Um, I can give you some stuff. It's probably not going to do anything, but 
And I was like, yeah, just just give me everything. And he's like, all right, antibacterial, um, steroids, uh, this other thing, this other that. Took everything, did nothing. Robitussin, over-the-counter cough medicine. You know, it turns out that shit does not work for everyone. It did nothing for me. And then I looked up the meta-analysis studies of Robitussin. In meta-analysis versus a placebo has almost no effect. Did you know that? Really? Yes. There are meta-analysis compiling studies of Robitussin versus placebo that find tiny effect sizes. Well, NyQuil used to get you high as fuck. Did they they change it? I think they did. Oh, for sure. For sure, right? Yeah, that's what RoboTrippin, they had to stop that. There was like uh, (laughs) a coating in it, I think. Dude, I had NyQuil once. I had NyQuil once in the 90s. I'll never forget it. Yeah. I I was sick. And I took NyQuil and I was laying in my bed and I was as happy as I've ever been in my life. I was like, I feel so loved. I just feel mm-hmm. so like one with everything. It was oh just, boy. I was like, oh that's, my God, I'm so opiate. high. That's yeah. Opiate, I was like this, like, ah. Uh, yeah. And I remember thinking, well, this is why people like NyQuil. I don't think before that time, and I was like in my 20s at the time, I was like, I don't think I've ever really had NyQuil. Right. Like really had it. And especially not as an adult where I could, like, recognize what's going on. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I'm so high. Yeah. I mean, NyQuil even now kind of feels good. What is it? It used to be codeine, right? Yeah, that's what I was just looking up. Dextromethorphan. Yeah. Right? What was NyQuil in the 90s? Was it codeine? It was fucking strong, though. I mean, bring it back. How come I can't have it now? Assholes. Anyway, my point about bringing up the cough story... (laughs) was there are certain problems uh like okay let me put it this way we have intuitions about which are the hard problems and which are the easy problems right and sometimes those intuitions are just way off so it turns out putting a man on the moon was easier than curing the common cough reliably i wouldn't have guessed that if i were like a human in like 1890 i would have been like they'll probably cure the cough before they put a guy safely in space. It turns out we haven't done that. And my guess is that the Neuralink stuff is gonna be more like a common cough type of problem where it's like, we think we're making progress, but it turns out to be so much more difficult than we can even realize hmm. that you know it's like 500 years from now and we still haven't gotten it. That's possible. It's also possible that they do it and then they keep expanding on it and uh, they keep innovating and then the competition starts kicking in and other people start developing new sorts of human brain interfaces and it gets extremely valuable to the point where you cannot compete without it Mm. and it becomes a thing where everybody has, just like everybody has a cell phone now. Mm -hmm. You know, if they can figure out a way to get people to interface with technology where you can literally share data and information back and forth without talking, mm-hmm. that's an invaluable skill and or you know, ability. Whether or not that actually is implemented, I don't know. But Elon has a fucking plan, and that's the smartest guy I've ever talked to. And when Again, he talks about it, not he's intelli- explaining how it's going to work. Mm-hmm. He's not like it's not pie in the sky shit. No, but I think. So this is this goes back to my point about intelligence is often not why people get things wrong. It's not that they're not intelligent. It's that sometimes when you're in an industry and you have that hammer, everything looks like a nail. Mm-hmm. So it's like the people in tech are going to be the ones to overestimate what tech can do. 
precisely because they're in tech. Yeah. I see Just like saying. the surgeon, the surgeon isn't going to think you can solve everything with surgery because he's a fucking right. surgeon. Right. Right. And so it's not that they're unintelligent. It's that um, sometimes, you know, people tend to overestimate the importance of their industry or the ability of their industry to solve everything. Mm. And it's a systematic bias I think people have across the board. So often people with it on the inside are some, sometimes the worst judges of the limits of their own enterprise. That does make sense. However, technological innovation seems to be one of the main consistent factors in human civilization. And the explosion of technological innovation that's taken place over the last 30 years, and particularly over the last, you know, whatever it has been since the internet was really fully implemented into everyone's household, it's been mind-boggling. Mm -hmm. And I don't see it slowing down. Mm -hmm. And I think that the next logical step is to go from something you carry around to something that's a part of your body. And I think they'll do it first for people with injuries, and then once they, and they've already have that. They already have things where they allow people to move a mouse around with their brain. They already have things where people with previously paralyzed hands can now use them. Mm -hmm. They have those things. Mm -hmm. The logical sort of technological innovation, if you extrapolate from where we are now to where we're going, whether it takes 10 years or 50 years or 100 years, I think the symbiotic connection between humans and technology is probably the only way we beat out artificial intelligence. Mm. I think the big fear is that someone creates artificial intelligence and that thing becomes sentient. And then that thing creates better artificial intelligence, far superior to ours, and does it very quickly. They, they find all the flaws that we have and they come up with a new version of us. And that we're not gonna be able to compete and that this sort of silicon-based life form will be far more advanced than us, but without emotions, without all the biological problems that we have, without the desire for breed and ego and all, it won't be programmed with any of those problems. So we'll just seek advancement and technological innovation for whatever fucking reason. I don't know why. I mean, maybe, mm -hmm. maybe it would have no motivation to do anything. It would just stop dead in its tracks because right. it would realize that the existence is futile. But I think the way to stop that is we become symbiotic and we, we integrate with technology, and that technology advances our capability. And as Elon says, it advances our bandwidth for accessing information. Yeah, I mean, I can't, I mean, I can't justify this with much more than a gut feeling, but. Gut feelings are great. Yeah, I mean, gut feelings come from somewhere. They come from, hopefully from years of yeah. learning about the world and guessing and being wrong and being right. That's where intuitions come from. But my intuition tells me that this is going to be one of those problems that we underestimate the difficulty of by orders of magnitude. It's like, how close are we to understanding the brain anywhere close enough? How many neurons are there in the brain again? It's a good question. It's like how many neurons so many the more than you think. Billions, probably trillions, I believe. Yeah, trillions. I think it's trillions. Is it yeah, trillions? I think it is. How Hopefully close are more, we yeah. to truly? Let's guess. Truly to like, on, okay, oh, God. I'm going to say three trillion. No. I'm going to say More? two trillion, 999. <laughs> no, it's 80, 86 billion. Oh, okay. Or close to average, average between 86. That's oh, it's not that many. <laughs> <laughs> That's Earth when we have optimal uh, population density. How close are we to understanding the brain 
Not it's the, 86 billion neurons. Not totally close. The, the question that's is... That's an understatement of the century. We're not even like... Yeah. We're not. We're like dipping our toe in to like the Pacific Ocean. It's like the Pacific Ocean and we like kind of are starting to understand like maybe what water is. Yes. I don't know. It's like, it's like we're at the beginning. A- and I guess my point is a, an understanding complete enough to integrate with technology uh, it's not at all obvious to me that we will ever get there. You know, like we could make progress forever, but it can be like asymptotic progress. Like there's there's an there's an asymptote here, and it's what's that word? It's like a well, you know, like in math, like how a graph can like approach the mm-hmm. limit of a thing without ever touching it, mm. and get infinitely closer to a line without ever touching it, and go on forever, like this. So it's like if you imagine we make asymptotic progress, there's this line. That because of our intelligence, you know, and our, our, our the fundamental fact that we're not wired by evolution to understand the world perfectly, we're wired to evolve and reproduce basically on the African savanna, right? And just like every other animal in the world, there's a limit to the things we are able to understand, right? Mm. Um, that limit for humans is way further than for any other animal, but fundamentally it's not infinite. And um, it w- again, it would stand to reason there are problems in the world that we may not we may not even be able to understand the problems much less the solutions i would say probably consciousness so far is looking like one but the point is it's possible we could keep making progress technologically forever but it's asymptotic progress in the sense that there's a line here that we keep approaching and it keeps looking like we're making progress because we are but you know there there's a line we're never going to hit so it can be both true at the same time that we keep making progress forever and that there is a limit to that progress that's asymptotic and certain things are um, be just beyond that line. And my, my intuition tells me that merging with uh, understanding the brain and understanding, you know, silicon well enough to merge them is, is probably beyond that line. But, but what if that line is akin to the line of human evolution? I mean, you go back to Australopithecus and you compare the, the the frame of those ancient hominids to a human being. You're not talking about that long ago, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of like the the time of life on Earth or the term in, in terms of time of the Earth itself. We're looking at in terms of our own individual lifetimes, yes. But what if human beings, and I believe we probably are, continuing to evolve and advance? And what if that is being shaped and aided by the access to information that mm-hmm. we have because of technology? So it almost certainly is. Almost certainly yeah, is. Yeah. yeah. So not just a symbiotic use of technology in terms of like being integrated into our own brain and our our own neuro- neurology, but what if it's happening to us because of that information? And so we are advancing our capabilities but we're doing it at a a biological evolution scale, which is like a slower scale. What what would that look like for evolution to be responding to slowly to uh, like digital integration? These little fuckers. That's what it's going to look like. We're going to (laughs) have little green men, big heads and little tiny bodies because we're not going to need muscle anymore. We're not going to need manpower and we're probably not going to need genitals, but probably going to figure out a way to breed that's, that doesn't we, sound fun. It doesn't sound fun. But unless <laughs> it's more fun, unless like doing something through some sort of uh, a 
hyper realistic virtual reality simulation type thing is more exciting than doing something biologically. Like, also, uh, because like it's that Black accessible. Mirror episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because well, everything's covered by Black Mirror, every dystopian idea that you have. But um, that's, I mean, if you look at, like, the difference between ancient hominids, ancient primates, and us, well, that's where it's consistent. Our heads are bigger, our bodies are softer, mm-hmm. you know, and it seems like if you keep going in that general direction, this is what you get. Well, that, that would have to be because people with bigger heads are having more children or something like that, and... Yeah, like or, the, the mutations that some mutation that makes us smarter leads to more offspring. But it's not clear to me anymore that there is a, a connection between, like, let's say I have a kid that has some crazy series, like one in a million mutation that gives him a three hundred IQ. Like, mm. Is that guy like? Is he gonna do much better reprodu- reproductively than like That's me or point. you? Only if he designs the matrix. <laughs> Yeah, and then human beings breed not through uh, biological uh, selection. Like this person looks better; they have a better hip to waist ratio. You mm-hmm. want to have a baby with her. Mm-hmm. This person's taller and more masculine. You want to have a baby with him. If it gets to the point where that's not how we choose anymore, then mm-hmm. maybe you will select for the people that are the most intelligent that mm-hmm. they can manipulate the matrix. <laughs> I had this guy, David Chalmers, on my podcast. He's a um, pretty well-known philosopher, and he just wrote a really thick book arguing, I'm sure you're familiar with the argument that we're living in a simulation. Yeah, Elon believes it. Yep. So he makes this argument. David Chalmers, he's a very rigorous guy. Like he's, He's a very logical arguer, and he goes through all the objections systematically. And, um, you know, it's it's impossible to dismiss the idea that we are. And, you know, my, my attitude before talking to him about this was, okay, this is like one of those thought experiments that's like fun to think about, but it wouldn't have any implications for the world. It's like, if it's a simulation, doesn't matter. Like this water still is water, I still feel. And insofar as I ground my ethics in the subjective experience of conscious creatures, and it doesn't actually matter whether those creatures are quote unquote real or digital, right? That was my attitude before talking to him. But then he he, he came up with some ways in which um, it like we should potentially act differently if we are in a simulation, because if we're in a, in a simulation, then they can unplug the simulation, right? And so, if we are in a simulation, then one of the projects of ex- existential risk of our world becomes figuring out why they might plug the simula- unplug the simulation and figuring out how we can get them to not, right? Like how can we signal to the people running the simulation that we really care about our world? We don't care if this is like a science, like we could be in like a middle school or science experiment or something like, ooh, what would happen if like, the chimpanzees like became like more like smarter and then he like you know runs a simulation and that's what we call and the big bang was him like plugging it in or whatever yeah if that's true then is he unplugging the simulation like when school's out and if so does it become a project like do we need a manhattan project of people trying to figure out like how to tell them not to (laughs) (laughs) 
kind of crazy and I don't think we should probably actually spend resources on it, but like I say that, but then when I actually walk through the argument for it, it's it's kind of impossible to refute. Well, isn't the simulation <laughs> possibly like the internet where there's so many different ways to interface with it and there's so many different points of contact, so many different connections, so many different servers that it's not like something someone can just hit a switch on. It's something that is almost like a life force of its own. I think the internet is slowly but surely becoming almost like a life force of its own, a life mm -hmm. force of information. Sure. So instead of like thinking like there's some little green man with his hand on a switch going, oh, these mm -hmm. fucking people, this chunk, mm -hmm. and hitting hitting the off switch, that it's it's more complex and more integrated than that. Um, I'm not sure it need be though. I mean, no, definitely we, doesn't need be. We have video games that are no more than a switch, and if you if you unplug them and destroy yeah. the video game, it's like if those digital creatures had consciousness, which we we don't have any reason to suspect that they do, but we also have no idea why the atoms in this package are conscious and the atoms in this table are not. Right. We have no theories that make sense logically as to why that is true. We simply assume it's true, and I, I, I assume this like everyone does. I'm not going around thinking that everything is conscious, but none of the explanations offered are consistent with our intuition, scientific intuitions about everything else. It's fundamentally still a mystery. Consciousness itself. Yes. Yeah. Like, like the, you know, why is it that when you put atoms together so as to make this thing we call a brain, that it's something, there's something it's like to be that collection of atoms? Wait a minute, aren't those the same atoms that, like, make up your spleen? Right. How come does your spleen have feelings? Is it is there a point of view on the world from your spleen? It's like we assume there's not. I certainly hope there's not, but we have no. And 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 if it's the fact that there's information processing going on with the brain, well, there's lots of things that process information. Computers are computers conscious. They we might just, be. They might be. And you go through every one of these ar ar arguments that's saying, well, here's the reason why we're conscious, and this this isn't. Go through every one. Um, none of them truly make sense. None of them make sense. And it's a mystery. And there, there's this, my favorite philosopher on this issue is this guy, Colin McGinn. And he has this idea of cognitive closure, which is that, you know, and I've kind of been parroting it a little bit in the past half hour or so. Just like every animal has a limit in the things that it is able to understand. Humans have that limit, and consciousness is beyond that limit, right? Like you, you look, you take certain animals, you put them uh, in front of a mirror, and uh, they, they, they cannot, they just don't know that it's them, right? Because the concept of reflection, of reflected light, is permanently beyond their ability to comprehend. It's like they can, they can identify the problem, like it's a mystery to them, like oh this other chicken is like moving weird and then other chickens and like, usually I can figure that out, but it's just a mystery. It's like every, every way they might pose the question is beyond chicken intelligence. And so they'll never answer it, right? What Colin McGinn posits is that there are problems that we stand in relation to, questions we stand in relation to as humans 
the same way uh, reflection stands in relation to you know a a very dumb animal Mm. and that consciousness uh, is is one of those problems and the hallmark of, of one of those problems is that every way we ask the question we don't get a satisfying answer every experiment we do it's not just that it comes up inconclusive it's like we can't wrap our heads around it and it's probably because we're not equipped to even ask the right questions the same way a chicken is not equipped to understand reflection that makes a shitload of sense yeah maybe osho was right <laughs> <laughs> listen man i really fucking enjoyed this conversation yeah me we, too we got to do this again yeah i would love to uh please tell everybody uh how they can find you on social media and find your podcast yeah, and yeah. all your all your stuff yeah so check out conversations with coleman wherever you listen to podcasts we do videos on youtube um etc follow me on twitter at cold x man which is also my rap name we just released a big music video that was filmed in ukraine called blasphemy on youtube check it out and i have a new song coming out today called straight a's and so yeah that's pretty much everything conversations with coleman and cold x man i feel like we could do this for hours and hours and hours but i gotta get the fuck out of here yeah so thank you so much again. i really enjoyed it thank I, you very I much love you too. yeah All anytime right. bye everybody